Hello, this is Martin Scorsese, and I'll be speaking to you periodically through the course of this DVD about the making of Gangs in New York. On January 1st, 1970, that's 32 years ago, I was uh, visiting some friends in, uh, in Long Island, and they had this, they were house-sitting a little cottage, and there was a fire in the fireplace, and they were reading Time and Again by Jack Finney, who had just been published, and uh, I looked at the bookcases, uh, and all the books in the bookcases, and that sort of thing, and ran across these titles. I don't know whose house it was. I still don't know whose house it was. Um, and I saw this title, Gangs of New York, Herbert Asbury, and I took out the book and started reading through. When I saw it, I said, this would make an incredible film, some aspects of it. And so it's been since then. I've talked about it all the time. And around 75 or 76 uh, is when I gave it to, I, I gave it to my friend Jay Cox immediately, actually, back around 71. And uh, we talked about it for four or five years before we actually got together and started working and since he started working on a script. Uh, this book seemed to give us the daily life or an impression of what it must have been like to be around at that time and to be living at that part of that part of Manhattan. Granted, uh, it's it's uh, you know certainly non nonfiction book, but it also is a book that uh, uh, deals not only with the real characters but also mythology of New York in a way. And so um, I found it fascinating, and I I also found the period between the Revolution and the Civil War in America fascinating. How was the country really formed? You know, there were so many experiments, there were so many, it's still an experiment, American democracy, so the Republic in a sense. So you have, you have from the Founding Fathers, you have uh, to, the, to the separation of, uh, of the country, the secession of the South, the, the Confederacy. I was wondering what, I learned some of American history to a certain extent, but I didn't quite understand the daily struggle that would ultimately define the country, going back to in the 1850s, the Dred Scott decision, all of that, all of that was we knew about, but we didn't really understand ultimately that until the end of the Civil War, 1865, the country was still in a sense being formed. It still is being formed now, but more so then. It's like the revolution really finished in 1865 in a way. And um, New York played an important part of that. There were so many films that influenced this because it's so much a part of my life, this movie. Uh, the opening battle scene uh, remained as it was. We didn't um, change it too much in the script, particularly the uh, people coming out from below the ground in the five points, more symbolic of, uh, of uh, in a way, it, it goes back to a, something that's timeless, uh, uh, ancient Mesopotamian uh, literature, Gilgamesh, all, all of this sort of thing in my mind uh, over the years that uh, when a society breaks down, I was interested in how it starts up again, formed into tribes, families, I should say, and then the family units are formed into tribes, and the tribes have a, have a leader, and then, of course, the tribe has to have a religion, the faith that binds them together, which gives them, the, uh, um, gives them the fuel, so to speak, to fight for their survival. For example, in this film, ultimately, Amsterdam and the, uh, the others rally around the church, but the god that they rally around, really, is a war god, uh, more of a... Celtic war god, not the Jesus uh, who preached love and peace, certainly, like most of us do at this point. Once you have a, a group of people battered into the ground, that they have no choice. They, they're not gonna, they have nothing to lose. 
then faith binds them together and the faith is usually a faith dealing with war you know that fuels the, the flames of war and that's what happens in, in this world I wanted to show that at the beginning of the film they come out from the underground uh, these people come right from the bowels of the earth they represent every group that's ever been oppressed and every group that's ever been part of the dispossessed they're the underground men they're the men of the underworld it's like the notes from underground by Dostoevsky they're the ones that are going to come out uh, and ultimately ultimately uh, create a day of judgment Is it, priest? The Pope's new army? A few crusty bitches and a handful of ragtags? I know, Bill. You swore this was a battle between warriors, not a bunch of Miss Nancys. So warriors is what I brought. The O'Connell Guard! The Plum Dugley! The Shark Tail! The Chichesters! The Forty Thieves! Benny. And my challenge! By the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all! Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives born rightwise to this fine land for the foreign hordes defiling it. By the ancient laws of combat, I accept the challenge of the so-called natives. You plague our people at every turn. But from this day out, you shall plague us no more. For let it be known that the hand that tries to strike us from this land shall be swiftly cut down. And may the Christian Lord guide my hand against your Roman popery. Prepare to receive the true Lord. The opening battle scene itself, a series of intercuts, 
of people fighting. The great inspiration for that was probably the best battle scene put on film is Chimes at Midnight, Orson Welles. And I believe they shot that for many weeks. Bits and pieces, that's what we wound up doing too. We shot the majority of the opening sequence uh, in three weeks. And then Vic Armstrong, who's an extraordinary uh, action director, um, he took um, drawings of mine and basically did them for another six or seven weeks, bits and pieces every day when the sun was right, with small groups of men. And I, I basically, in his, his direction, I had designed a lot, of the, a lot of the shots, and specifically in the editing pattern. Particularly, you could see that when Hellcat Maggie flies through the frame and uh, lands on the, uh, the back of, a, of a, uh, another fighter and she bites his ear off. Those shots were exactly as drawn, and he would get them for me. I'd come over and check them because I was able to move anywhere I wanted on that set because we owned it. I had a golf cart and I'd just go between units, and that, that kind of was kind of exhilarating and exciting. But um, I was fascinated by I'm always fascinated by Russian montage. I happen to like editing, and uh, particularly the 1920s, the montage of the 1920s. And in Eisenstein's Potemkin, there's a scene where um, a sailor, uh, yes, of course, the editing and the Odessa step sequence and all that, we all, we were all aware of that. But I was interested in the, in the, break, the breaking up of the, of the imagery, almost like Cubist painting in a way, and, uh, or like uh, a choreography uh, by uh, Nijinsky, you know. In a, in a strange way, it, because there's a scene where a so, uh, sailor is washing a plate and he sees that it says on it, give us this day our daily bread. And they had just been, uh, they just had almost an insurrection on, on the boat about uh, the meat that was being served to the sailors, uh, which was rotten and uh, filled with maggots. And he was very bitter about it. So he looked at the dish, he looked, kept looking at the dish, and then, then he took the dish, raised it above his head and smashes it, smashed it against the sink. and. I don't know, there might be about seven or eight cuts in that sequence. And what I was interested in is that somehow in the smashing of the dish, the smashing of the dish was not the main component of the action. The main component was his arm. And particularly his arm when it completed the motion. I think they cut to it three times maybe. Top of his shoulder, a striped shirt he's wearing. And the arm, the arm at rest had such power to it. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of imagery I wanted and the kind of editing ultimately I wanted when Vic Armstrong was shooting the bits and pieces for me of different action, I told him to, um, he would show me an action, I'd say, okay, now do that track left to right and uh, or vice versa or track in and out. Always keep the camera moving and um, start with the, go, start the shot with 48 frames per second, go down to 12 frames and come back up to 24. Now do the shot again and just do the opposite. And so we got bits and pieces that in my mind with Thelma, I was telling her stuff that we would normally cut out the stuff that we would normally throw away, the, the, um, the, um, the completions of action. Uh, therefore, in the editing, it's all suggested. Uh, you never see a knife going in a person. I don't think so anyway. I mean, that's the way I cut it with Thelma, and um, that's what I was striving for. Um, there have been some people I know who say, well, the film is too violent. Another person, I heard this overheard. People didn't know I was listening to them. They didn't know it was me. And the person, that's not violent. They'd say it's bloody. It, it gives you the idea of violence, but it's not really a violent film. But you're dealing with, uh, it's true, blood is in the streets constantly. And you're dealing with a world that uh, I grew up where a world was violence was an option, There's no, as they say today. There was no, no doubt about that. But in this particular world that I'm depicting, violence was an everyday occurrence of all kinds, domestic, street, gangland, everything. And so this is so much a part of the fabric of the film that you had to find a way to give the impression of that without constantly dwelling on it, you know. And so that's why the, it was edited like that. And that's, if you look at the film, um, there's a, even when 
monk is killed with his uh, with the, the knife from uh, from Bill. It's uh, you don't see it. You don't see it happen. You really don't. It happens as monk is walking towards us. Um, but that was the, the 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 nature of trying to convey a world that was so tough. Um, and this is very important because violence in the movies I made over the years, I've I've done uh, violence in a pretty flat, straightforward way. I just didn't know how else to do it except the way I did it in Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and uh, um, Goodfellas and Casino. But by the end of Casino, um, the killing of Joe Pesci and his brother and a st string of killings uh, in Las Vegas, I, I didn't, uh, I, in my mind, I think, you know, it's very important to depict this lifestyle and you have to show you have to show the downside, and this is the downside of it. Um, and you have to be honest with it. I just think you have to be honest in the portrayal of violence, not glorify it, but, but just put yourself in that position um, and to understand the brutality of it and the, uh, particularly the killing, let's say, of Pesci and his brother at that, at that point by his best friends, uh, simply with bats, it was, uh, with baseball bats. Um, the, the brutality is, is uh, primeval, you know, and I think... Um, um, I don't want to make it stylish anymore, but I didn't want to fall into a, uh, a cause and effect of a violent movement and you see the effect graphically. I wanted to suggest it with camera moves, camera speed, speeding up and down, that sort of stuff. Um, and also I was interested in the movement, the movement and the creation of a kind of confused, uh, futile, um, primeval world, everything, just the futility of the fight itself. And you add to that the music that we put on, and it was a piece by Peter Gabriel called Signal to Noise, uh, which is pretty interesting, and I think you get a sense of what I was trying. Uh, there's no reason to be kind of literal. I don't want to be literal at all in the movie. There are times when I do go, uh, throughout the picture, all the, all the um, uh, source music, in a way, is very, very accurate, as much as possible. But uh, in terms of uh, the Gabriel piece uh, at that point, it's more like a dirge, more like, a, more like an elegy, in a way. You have grown from a boy into a man. Put to death the earthly things in you. Immorality, impurity, passion, vengeance. The Lord has forgiven you. You also must forgive. You go forth to a country torn apart by civil strife. Thank you, Reverend. Lend your hand to the work that yet remains, that this war may end, and the plague of slavery that brought this conflagration down upon us vanish forever from the earth. With this particular film, it's been stop and start over the years, over 30 years. In the end of the 70s, we thought it was time to make it, and everything changed. Uh, after making Raging Bull, things were quite different, and the system changed, Hollywood changed, and the necessary, the, the, the budget that we needed for this particular film uh, was certainly uh, uh, not going to the kind of picture uh, that we wanted to make at the time. And so during the 80s, um, uh, we sort of put it aside and I followed uh, the path of another picture, Last Temptation of Christ, trying to get that made, which I finally did get made, in the end, get made at the end of the 80s. And right at the same time, finishing up Goodfellas, which was released in 1990. And right around when we were doing Goodfellas, and we realized now may be the time again 
the gangs in New York. I took the script with me to Japan in 1989 uh, to do some work there with Akira Kurosawa, one of his last, last films. And while we were waiting to shoot, I, uh, it was a typhoon, so in the hotel, in this small hotel in Hokkaido, uh, I took out the script and read it then and said, I see now, let's, let's get back into this project, let's revise it, let's see if we can get it made. So around 19, uh, 1989, 1990, we revised it again, and uh, it was almost possible to get it made then, but again, it was uh, a number of reasons, different reasons why, combination of factors, it just didn't get made. And then finally, by 1999, the suggestion was made again. And in this case, um, uh, having the possibility of Leonardo DiCaprio um, helped us, um, because Leo is an actor, that I've been looking at for a number of years. Uh, my friend Robert De Niro told me about working with him in This Boy's Life. And Leo was 16 years old, and De Niro usually tells me things only when I ask him about, would you recommend so-and-so? Who would you recommend for a part like this, or whatever? I give him a script, and he would give me ideas on the script, and he does the same with me over the years. And so he, he, uh, he volunteered this information about DiCaprio as a young boy. He said, this is some, some kid you're going to have to work with someday. He's quite good and a lot of potential. So back around 94, 95, I knew about him. Um, and then, of course, I saw him in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Uh, I thought, remarkable, moving. And, uh, and people, whenever, whenever I'd be on the set, uh, people walk by, people on the crew, uh, friends of mine, electricians, grips, says, yeah, you gotta work with this kid DiCaprio. He's really he's young yet, but he's going to get older. It's gonna be really interesting. <laughs> say, yeah, maybe you can work on something. I'd say, yeah, yeah, okay. And then De Niro would keep telling me this, too. And so, um, I wound up, uh, it's a long story, but basically um, the gangs of New York had been in uh, preparation for many years. They went through many uh, transformations. Um, and when I was on the set of a film uh, I was making in 1999 called Bringing Out the Dead, uh, my old friend Mike Ovitz uh, uh, came to visit me on the set. We were working at nights, and he, he was having lunch with me at one in the morning. And, uh, and he said, what do you want to do next? And we were talking about this other project I had, but things didn't seem to be going well. But he said, why don't you do Gangs of New York? I said, all right, I got this Leo DiCaprio. I said, yeah, it'd be perfect. So <laughs> that became, that was the moment where uh, he said, you know, you've always wanted to make that. And uh, um, Mike was a guy who uh, said the same thing to me about a film I made in 1987, 88, called Last Temptation of Christ, which uh, uh, was also a picture, uh, although for different reasons, had problems being made. Uh, but when I met Mike Obitz for the first time, he said, uh, what do you really want to make? I said, well, it's Last Temptation of Christ. He says, okay, let's see if we can get it going. And it got, it got made, and he's been that way for my career. Um, being a kind of catalyst that way, or diviner in a way, who would just come in and suddenly how these things would, almost impossible to make, all came together. And uh, I went over with Mike's, um, to Mike's agency at the time and met Leo, and, uh, and so all of this was, all of this came together at that point, and then we began to have some flesh and blood on Amsterdam, because uh, prior to that, uh, couldn't figure quite the, um, usually have an easier time with the, with the villainous characters rather than the uh, quote heroes, unquote, in a way. Uh, but in any event, that, um, uh, by the time we got to make the film, um, the, the fact that Leo DiCaprio was able to come on board was one of the major reasons the film got made. And if Leo DiCaprio has uh, power to get a film made because of his uh, bankability due to Titanic, um, he, I found, <laughs> certainly in my, my estimation, putting it to good use because he uh, put, it to the, put it to gangs in New York in a sense. Mulberry Street. And worth cross, an orange, and a little water. Each of the five points is a finger. When I close my hand, it becomes a fist. And any time that I wish, I can 
turn it against you. I understand, but we're talking about different things. I'm talking about civic duty. Responsibilities we owe to the people. Schools and hospitals, sewers and utilities, street construction, repairs and sweeping, business licenses, saloon licenses. People who are, are uh, quibbling about whether a cave exists or not, I'm telling you, that you, you tell me, you can argue me in terms of people have argued me about it. Well, this, was there a cave? Was there? Yes, there are caves. Have you ever gone down to the tenement to turn when the fuse goes off <laughs> on Elizabeth Street <laughs> in 1955 when the fuses went out and you have to go down to the basement uh, to uh, put a new fuse in? Uh, first of all, you had to be armed because of the rats. Uh, and uh, you found below there were more, I think what they did, you see, I know that the Italians used the sub-basements, not just the basement, the, the sub-basements for storage, but mainly for um, making wine, which uh, was very important. Um, I do know, and I actually saw it happen, um, that some basements have so many uh, kind of, uh, how should I put it, uh, secret ways. A person who is a thief, let's say, or somebody's chasing him, him or her, they go into a, a basement on Mulberry Street and come out on Elizabeth somehow or come out in the backyards down by the church. This is all, this was all done for protection, and I've been below, and I mean, go to, go to the Chinese area. I tell you now that there are places below the ground where people are working, way below the ground. Who are you? Huh? Hey. No. I said, who are you? What are you doing here? I just like it down here is all. See what's in his pockets, Jim. Now look, look, boys, I really don't want to fight. Don't the fight. area of the five points boys, really reflected um, the breakdown of civilization, that many tried to keep a family together, but many of them were uh, not given jobs, and um, uh, they, were just, they were just disintegrate, so to speak. The family was into, into uh, drunkenness and, and all kinds of uh, terrible situations that, uh, that occurred down there. That place was maybe 40,000 people living in a very small area, Everybody crowded around each other and on top of each other. So it was almost like a post-apocalyptic world um, uh, where people had to redefine what living really is. You're the priest's son, aren't you? You, get away from me, understand? Don't remember me, do you? That's the one tried to help you. What? That's the one tried to help you when the natives took you. I was working closely with Joe Reedy and Michael Ballhouse about Johnny's tour of the Five Points. The, the choice that I was trying to make was whether the cutaways to the gangs that Johnny is describing um, should be done in different parts of the city or should all be there in Paradise Square, which was a big choice to make because of the number of extras involved and how to shoot that. It was not a matter of anything else, not, not a matter of uh, uh, action that, that they were doing, uh, any kind of fighting they were doing. It was a matter of where to shoot these different gangs. We do mention the Swamp Angels. Uh, there was uh, a thought, for example, of showing the Plug Uglies fighting at the fish market. The fish market is over by the, by the pier, but we decided not to. I decided to put it all in Paradise Square as if it's happening in Paradise Square at the moment. The biggest question came into play with the um, the uh, river pirates, one of the groups called the Swamp Angels. You don't, you're not robbing a ship during the day. 
you're doing it at night. But the insert would be such a quick shot. And uh, it'd be so far off Paradise Square that it might come in, uh, it might visually be, be disorienting. Uh, because in a sense, a lot of the gang activity in my film was uh, simplified so that much of it took place in Paradise Square and the Five Points. But the uh, seaport is somewhat outside of the Five Points. And uh, the big decision at that moment was whether to literally go all around the city or condense it and confine it to the Five Points, sort of uh, um, make a metaphor for the rest of the city in a way. True Blue Americans call themselves a gang, but all they really do is stand around in corners damning England. I think, you know, this picture is sort of, um, I've made a lot of films that take place in New York. Um, it's a city I ch that I prefer, it's a city I choose to live in, a city, city I was raised in and grew up in, um, and a city which marked me and still does. And so um, I'm always fascinated by, I'm, I'm fascinated by history and I'm fascinated by the history of America and also the history of the city. And so, in a sense, this, this film sort of represents a foundation upon which all my other movies are based, in a way. It sort of creates uh, a world in which uh, uh, the worlds I depict in Mean Streets and Goodfellas and uh, Raging Bull, to a certain extent, Taxi Driver, um, it, it's the foundation from which those worlds emerged. And um, yes, there's no doubt this is based on history, there's no doubt about it, but it is still a film that is more of an opera than history. Um, the history is um, a touchstone in a way that we could go back to. That certain facts we can we can make sure are accurate. Other facts we combine. Other uh, certain uh, characters we combine it to two or three people into one person. Leonardo DiCaprio's character represents a whole whole generation of people, in a way, a new generation of immigrant. Um, uh, uh, Daniel Day Lewis's character represents uh, the old intransigent, conservative. Um, uh, nativist or chauvinist way of thinking um, and uh, it, it tries to create a period of time where in a sense not the whole city wasn't like this but this was a sort of a festering wound in the city that allowed to uh, continue in the way we see in the film automatically I should say ultimately ultimately results in the city blowing up like a powder keg and if we're most historically accurate, it's, in, it's to the nature of the anarchy and the chaos. That, I think, is important. Uh, certainly, it's about a period uh, in American history, particularly the history of New York City, that um, is very, um, I say, underreported, so to speak, particularly by the newspapers of note at that time, up to 1863, 1865, uh, maybe up to late 1860s and the beginning of the 1870s is when they started really paying attention to that area. And, there's a lot, a, lot, a lot written about it, but a lot of it comes down through folklore and um, hearsay and uh, uh, some facts which I'm sure have been embellished. And so we took that as a cue, in a way. The facts themselves, if they were facts at all, were somewhat embellished. There's no doubt that that lifestyle existed. That I know for a fact. I also grew up in an area that had a similar kind of lifestyle, albeit a different century. Uh, but I also understand it. I also understand it a lot. So I took those elements and took those facts which I, first of all, that have been proven to be facts by other research that we did, um, other sources, but to take that and to understand first you're gonna make, you're gonna take these, this period of time, create some characters based on the certain characters of the period, based on some characters, not really the same characters, and heighten it very much the same way as let's say when John, huh, well, My Darling Clementine, directed by John Ford, is about the Earp Brothers 
Wyatt Earp, Virgil, a few others, and uh, they're in Tombstone, Arizona. His relationship with Doc Holliday primarily, and of course, the Clantons, uh, which leads to the gunfight at the OK Corral. Now, if you look at my Dawn Clementine, from what I understand, um, which is one of my favorite films, and uh, um, of course, deals with a different aspect of history, American history, and deals with a different approach, too, uh, certainly. But in a sense, you can say that this is inspired by those events, that the actual, the actual um, choreography of the, uh, of the gunfight at the OK Corral in that particular film is much more elaborate than I think there really happened at that gunfight. Uh, and I think it lasted less than a minute. Particularly, I think, five or six men facing each other with guns firing away. It's not going to last that long. And so, in a sense, we hope it to be a worthy contender to, uh, let's say, uh, the approach that Ford and the others took to history in terms of My Darling Clementine, and pictures like that, you know. Now, I take that as a generic backdrop about the poor and about people who are oppressed, about people who are fighting for individual freedom, for people who are trying to find a decent life for themselves and can't get past the five points. Now, you can do anything you want from there. You could have a building that has uh, uh, inside uh, uh, what seems to be a bar. You have people singing and dancing, some old women in the corner uh, doing needlework, and at the same time, carcasses of meat hanging and butchers working on the meat. Bill the Butcher is based on a real character named Bill the Butcher Poole. However, because Bill Poole was killed in 1856, um, we changed his name to William Cutting um, because we haven't died during the draft riots for the dramatic purpose of the story. And that should give you an indication of the, the ratio between um, the fiction, or what I like to call the opera, so to speak, in this picture, the heightening of the reality, um, as opposed to the actual historical fact, as, a, as opposed to certain films that are made based on actual historical fact. This is a, an impression of a surreal time, almost, uh, particularly in the use of certain um, sequences in the film, particularly in whatever takes place in what we call Sparrow's Chinese Pagoda. Now, Sparrow's Chinese Pagoda was the name of a, of a, um, a big institution at that time, a saloon, so to speak, but I think from the 1880s, and we took that name and moved it up. So we took a sense of the color of the time and used whatever facts we felt in terms of that were more generic to the period. Yes, we have characters like William Tweed, who later became the famous Boss Tweed, who is the, is the name now, whenever they mention corruption in America, everybody knows Boss Tweed. But in the, this point in the film, played by Jim, Jim Broadbent, he's a um, he's a, he's just becoming Boss Tweed in a way. Uh, but he's wonderfully corrupt, uh, and uh, even even a couple of times P.T. Barnum comes in. But we have P.T. Barnum. Uh, we we kind of move him around into worlds that maybe he wasn't totally in, but could have been. You know, um, we were trying to create almost like a, a heightened sense of reality coming out of um, uh, history, which which is uh, which is. Uh, a history which is uh, created from a kind of breakdown of civilization, in a way. The Five Points area, to me, represents, in a sense, a breakdown of um, civilized society, what civilized society was supposed to be, something that America was aspiring to, killing each other on battlefields. Um, and if it's most accurate, it's to that frame of mind. Not my favorite tune. You keep out of trouble now. In the, the case of the music for the film, 
I really had in mind originally. The type of soundtrack I created from Mean Streets or Goodfellas or Casino. Of course, there were no recorded pieces of music at the time. But we've come across in research examples of the music that was played at the time, the type of songs, the lyrics, etc. The New York Historical Society and other, other outlets have this sort of thing. Plus, there are recordings from the 1920s, 30s that have indications of older music uh, from the 1880s, maybe. So we slip in a little, anachronistically, a little touch of blues at times. But that was the suggestion as to where the music was going to go. And if you're on a street corner, it's very hard to say, since nobody was around, exactly what was heard in those street corners. Um, it's really the mixture of uh, English, Irish, Scottish folk music with African. And that's what I was concerned about. So in a sense, Robbie Robertson uh, was able to compile over a period of time many discs, many CDs of all sorts of folk music and uh, um, African chants, everything he got his hands on, or modern music um, or other elements of just interesting pieces that he thought might be interesting as a feel. He used to use the word as a feel for certain scenes. And through the course of a year, I listened to all of that, then compiled um, what I liked most from those. Uh, we put them into the computer, the editing computer, the Lightworks, and then broke them up uh, broke them up in different ways, saying, okay, this is African, this has elements of blues, this is Irish-English, this is Scottish, and we started to blend, and then I started making the notes for Thelma exactly which piece of music to try and which scenes. And, uh, uh, but this came through a very long process, of about a year and a half, of listening to a great deal of stuff that Robbie had sent, and also other people had gave me, but primarily Robbie. And so um, that, was a, that, was the, that was the source of uh, the sound of the movie, ultimately. And we took everything, even classical music, threw it all in. Where are you going, boy? I'm here to pay tribute to Bill. Where are you now? Yeah, give it to me. I'll give it to him. No, thanks. I'll give it to him myself. Oh. What do you want to keep? The morning for your teeth boil. John. Welcome. For me, me lad, sir. Daniel Day-Lewis, I worked with him on, uh, in 1992 on Age of Innocence. And uh, we had a very good, very, we had a very good uh, working relationship. Um, he in effect, became Newland Archer, the character he's playing in Age of Innocence. Um, when I say became, it's always, uh, it sounds like a, uh, something magical in a way, or uh, hypnotic, but in a sense, uh, he does become the character, or at least his version of the character. And uh, what that does, and this is one of the reasons I, I imagined him as Bill, uh, the butcher, uh, myself and Jay Cox, uh, we're talking about it when we were writing together Age of Innocence and Jay looked up and said imagine if we ever get Gangs of New York made imagine what imagine what uh, Dana Day-Lewis could do with Bill the Butcher character and I said oh that would be something but as, 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 I, as I've said, stated in many places Gangs of New York took many years to pull together and I was never quite we never got quite to the point where we really were at the starting gate to really even talk to actors I mean, let alone think about who could play Amsterdam or Jenny uh, Jay Cox did remind me however that in the early 70s when we always talked about doing Gangs of New York before he even set pen to paper. Uh, uh, he was, we were talking, we were always so, we were, we greatly admired Malcolm McDowell, particularly because it was in two films in the early 70s, or late 60s, early 70s, uh, a film called If, directed by Lindsay Anderson. 
It was an extraordinary picture. And we were taken by McDowell at that point. And of course, Clockwork Orange. That's the only time I can remember discussing an actor. And I had forgotten it. Uh, Jay had reminded me of this. Uh, but the first one that came to mind with Bill the Butcher was through Jay uh, saying maybe Daniel Day-Lewis at one point in time. But in any event, um, Daniel um, uh, had uh, sort of been on retreat from acting, uh, studying uh, shoemaking in Florence under a great uh, shoemaker, a great master there. Uh, may have been a couple of years or a year and a half of his life, I think. In any event, it was, it was, it was pointed out to, that he didn't want to work again in film or in theater. And Harvey Weinstein uh, and Leo DiCaprio and myself were talking, and Jay Cox too. And basically, uh, his name came up, of course, immediately. And as well, I don't think he's working anymore. But uh, Harvey said, why don't you just call him? You know, Last time I had seen him was at a screening of Kundun uh, that I invited in, uh, Daniel and his wife, Rebecca, to. In any event, we did call. Um, I sent him the script. Uh, he called back. He was very polite, uh, but he was noncommittal. And so Harvey Weinstein, uh, which is um, uh, was a strong point with Harvey, he sort of pushed the issue and said, well, I'll fly him in for three days, and which is what he did. And Harvey told him, uh, Daniel, do me a favor. Don't do this part because I want to win the Academy Award. I want to play it. That's what Harvey told him. So <laughs> they have a relationship going back to my left foot, the Jim Sheridan picture, and uh, uh, that goes way back to, I think, 1992 or something, 91, whatever. But in any event, uh, Daniel did come in. Uh, Leo DiCaprio, myself, and Harvey stayed with him for two to three days. We talked, showed him all the research. Uh, admittedly, the script was still being worked on um, and developed, and uh, we talked a little about the character. And finally, um, uh, we went to dinners, and <laughs> it's the old story in a way. We uh, really admire him so much. We wanted him to be a part of this journey that we were going to take. It was more like an expedition on this movie. And so um, uh, uh, we told him we loved him and want to be with him and uh, uh, it, it, we'll support him and he'll support us, we're sure. We we're sure of that. And uh, Leo had never really met Daniel before but expressed his great admiration for him, etc. In any event, uh, one, the day before he left, I was going through some research pictures and the book opened to a, an engraving of the real Bill the Butcher, Bill Poole and it looked just like Daniel. And I said, look at that, it's, it's, it's fated. You have to do this. And so that's how it began. And eventually, when he did fall into character, uh, uh, he, developed, he developed falling into character, really. Uh, it went over a period of time, a couple of months, I think, uh, along with developing the accent with Tim Monick, uh, who was our dialect coach. And with that, um, when, I, when I realized, ultimately, uh, I was more after a certain point in time in rehearsals and discussions and pre-production, I was talking more often to Bill than to Daniel. Uh, it made me feel very comfortable because I got to like Bill a lot, and so did Leo. And uh, we felt that, in a sense, we, we were bypassing a kind of actor, an actor's process. The process of the actor with Daniel is, a, is just a, it made me feel very comfortable as if the character was really uh, alive and existing right there in front of our eyes, and we were experiencing this person every day. Although with, with him, he had pointed out last week we were talking, he pointed out that usually the character has to find him, uh, has to let himself be known to him. And so he just becomes, after about two or three weeks, you find that uh, whatever moves he's making, uh, suggestions for an improv or something, is coming from the character who's now sort of permeating his, his being in a way. Uh, so, so when he talks to you, when he, when he talked to me, like, off camera or just even on the telephone is not is no longer as Daniel and uh, it's not some magical 
magical process. It's just a very, just happens to be the way he goes through it. Right? And I think it pulled together when he started trying on the clothes and uh, working out uh, his mustache and uh, also the hairstyles. We had developed the hairstyle period of uh, two, two or three different hairstyles we tried two or three weeks before shooting. We settled on one, which you'll see, which you see in the film. Uh, a little bit, uh, that I recall that, um, that uh, they may have really, people have been asking about overt influences on Bill's character from other movies. Um, no, the, um, uh, aside, not for me, but aside from the films I made over the years where the, uh, uh, the main character is usually a person who's uh, not uh, a hero or a total villain, but a mixture of both, and sometimes leaning towards a person who uh, is not uh, considered a, uh, a normal film hero, like a Jake LaMotta or a, a Travis Bickle, the Paul Schrader's creation, Travis Bickle and Taxi Driver and that sort of thing. Um, naturally, I'd lean more towards the, uh, quote, villainous side, unquote. And uh, I think the only interesting association I had about Bill was just a visual association. That was with the character of the villain in um, the, the French classic Les Enfants du Paradis. Now, I forget the man's name. I forget the character's name. I forget the actor who played the part. But his hairstyle reminded me of that. Uh, costumes to a certain extent. And uh, in fact, a lot of the picture had reference to the French street underworld, which was depicted in Les Enfants de Paradis. Um, and also Dominique Vandenberg, who was one of our technical advisors and was also acts in the film as one of the uh, um, associates of uh, Amsterdam and the other young boys, um, uh, Shang and all the others. And Dominique, um, who doesn't have dialogue in the film, but he's always present. Um, uh, he was uh, a veteran of the French Foreign Legion, and he's uh, Belgian. And he uh, basically uh, worked out with everyone, and uh, technical advisors and uh, stunt coordinators, uh, the French 18th century street fighting uh, method or technique called savat. And so, in a funny way, we were dealing with the French underworld, uh, uh, which you later see in a wonderful film, which is in the 18, which takes place, I think, in the 1890s, called Casque d'Or, um, directed by Jacques Becker. Um, Daniel also then was able to improvise in the film certain gestures, moves. For example, the tapping of his glass eye with the point of a knife was an improvisation that he felt he should do. Um, a scene that I, I like a great deal, uh, where he's uh, interrogating. Happy Jack, uh, basically telling him to go and beat up this young boy, Amsterdam, to keep him in line, um, and his uh, his, uh, his breakdown, his crying, uh, his mock crying, filled with such rage that he had to be rather theatrical about it to make his point to Happy Jack. Uh, this was a total improvisation. He told me at one point during one of the takes, uh, right before we did one of the takes, he says, I have an idea. It's, I think it's kind of crazy. I said, don't, don't tell me, just do it. And that's what he that's what he did, and uh, there was a great deal of improvisation in that scene. Uh, other things were improvised. Um, for example, his reaction when he throws a knife into the locket, in uh, the scene in which he's throwing the knives at Jenny, and he says "Whoops, a Daisy," and that was a uh, definite improv. It, throughout the film, there are moments like that with him. I was raised in a very similar establishment myself. Now everything you see belongs to me, to one degree or another. The beggars and newsboys and quick thieves here in paradise, the sailor dives and gym mills and blind tigers on the waterfront, the anglers and amusers, the sheehees and the chinks. Everybody owes, everybody pays, because that's how you stand up against the rising of the tide. 
Is that right, boys? Yeah, Bill, that's right. Enlist, join up, serve your country. Come on in out of the draft, boys. Volunteer and get your $50 bonus. We need 30,000 volunteers, and we're prepared to pay $677 per volunteer. Please read this. Thank you. Would you like to take one of these, please, to fill out? Three square meals a day. I think uh, Jenny's an interesting character because she represents the kind of woman that was coming out of the points. Uh, in majority, majority of them died young. A lot of them died young, men and women. Women more so. Women had less of a chance to really do much in, in the underworld there. And, um, aside from prostitution, aside from thievery of any kind. Or some starting very, very young, five, six. Dying when they're 10, 9, whatever. Uh, I guess by the time they were 20, they looked 80. You know? But around the time of the Civil War, some of the women were getting uh, more sophisticated with their crime. And Jenny represents one of those. She was taking the crime outside the Five Points, going into uh, areas in which she was playing a scam, confidence, what they would call later confidence game, confidence men. Uh, she, was, she was one of the characters that we, we gave this, this element to, to represent this is what the underworld will be like later, you know? Uh, and actually it did become like that in the 18, late 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It became more sophisticated, more complicated, and uh, Confidence Man became uh, uh, a key figure. Uh, today, you know, like uh, credit card scammers or uh, pyramid schemes and things like that, became very, or hackers on computers today. She represents sort of the beginning of that. And also a person who knows that if I save enough money, if I get enough loot, uh, one of the things I like to do is, I, it's amazing I've survived this long and that I look well. <laughs> I still look pretty good. Let me get out of town. Let me leave this place. There's nothing really in it for me anyway, anymore. You know, and uh, the only way you have to understand at that time, the only way they could leave was, huh? it's not that easy to leave a city like that, an area like that in the city. And uh, don't forget, particularly during the Civil War, where were the railroads? There was no transcontinental railroad. Most of the railroads were being used for the Union soldiers. Ship, well, where would you go? Can't go south. There's a war. You can go past the south, I guess, get past the blockade somehow, and go around the tip of South America, come all the way up to San Francisco, get in a boat from San Francisco, then go to the Yukon, and try your luck. What still, what still was happening at the time, still was, uh, America was still undergoing sort of the gold rush from the 1849 period. I did have to put our new daughter in the film somewhere, I thought. But I didn't want to put her in the five points because it was so dirty. And quite honestly, after two weeks of working in those sets and rain and all sorts of things, they became very lived in. Uh, the streets became very muddy. Uh, I just decided that uh, uh, wasn't the best place for the little one to be. She wasn't, she wasn't able to walk at the time yet, but she, was just, she learned while we were there in Rome. But um, I decided that the only place she could probably be in the film is uh, when Amsterdam gets a glimpse of how the other half lives. And, of course, in order for her to be in the frame, we'd have to be in the frame with her. And, uh, and therefore, I, I appear as what some people have criticized me as doing, as becoming a, uh, an upper-class person for some reason, identifying with that. That's not the case because of the kid. <laughs> I would have liked to dress more like one of the natives. I thought that would be interesting downtown, you know. Let my beard grow a little bit, you know what I mean, for about a week or two. 
That would have been nice. But I must say, though, that making this film was so complex, I didn't have time to be in front of the camera. So if you do something that you're going to be in front of the camera for, it's best just to be seated at a table. <laughs> Cameron Diaz uh, was recommended to me by Joe Roth when uh, Disney was doing the film. I had only seen her in There's Something About Mary. And then I saw her and they showed me a rough cut of um, Being John Malkovich and I thought she was quite good. Um, I didn't necessarily, I, it's hard for me sometimes to follow the modern movies that are made, so I didn't necessarily know Cameron Diaz as a comedienne, but as an actress, mainly. And so I met her a few times, a couple of meetings we had, but over a period, long, long, over a long period of time, because the film uh, was, uh, as far as I was concerned, it was such a dream come true that I didn't believe it. I never believed that the picture would get made, even to the point on August 1st, uh, 2000, when we flew to Rome to live there. I still thought, no matter if the sets were built, anything could happen in this business. And so I didn't pay too much attention to it. Ultimately, we did do auditions. And I said, if Cameron would agree to audition, then that'll be fine. You know, um, By that point, Harvey Weinstein was involved with the film. And so uh, Harvey took it upon himself to get a film that could not be made, made. And especially he's a great fan of mine and we're friends over the years, uh, doing lots of work together on uh, different restorations, uh, presentations of certain films or whatever. And anyway, um, uh, we, Ellen Lewis is my casting director, and, and we had Leo DiCaprio in the room, and basically we auditioned about 20 or 30 young women, and, uh, and then Cameron Diaz came in uh, for an audition, and we talked for a little while before, and then she came in the room and started doing a scene with Leo, an old scene, uh, a scene that is in the film now, uh, after she's uh, caught by him, she, she's stolen his medal, and they walk along uh, uptown in New York and they speak, they talk a little bit and uh, I found that as soon as she started something happened not only was she bright and uh, exciting to look at and listen to and she had a certain energy um, and a great sense of humor it also created something for Leo DiCaprio I saw something happen to him that he started engaging her with the same dialogue that he had worked with other young women with uh, that uh, using the same dialogue but um, that he wasn't necessarily I didn't see uh, the chemistry uh, with other people, the way I saw it with the two of them, and I was very heartened by that. And so, uh, ultimately, we decided to go that way. Fellini's satiricon is a, is a, certainly a, an inspiration for this movie. And maybe in the early 70s, it was, it was even, in my mind, going more towards that kind of thing, where, as Fellini pointed out, science fiction in reverse. Danilo Donato... Uh, his great production designer and costume designer. He said, it's as if we're going in the streets of Rome at night, and we look down in the old um, cobblestones, and we happen to pry one loose, you lift it up, and what do you find below? You find the ancient Romans crawling around. You know, And that's exactly what I had tried to do in gangs, give you the impression as if you lift up a stone, if, or if there's some excavation going on in the city, and you look below and you discover this whole world, but it's all alive. I always felt that Bill the Butcher would be a dandy in the way he dressed. And that's really based on Bill 
the butcher Poole, Bill Poole, the real Bill, Bill the Butcher. Uh, he, was, uh, he was originally a butcher, and the butcher was the sort of um, royalty of the merchant class in a way. Um, they, they, were, they were considered the most important vendors uh, because the meat had to be sold immediately and that sort of thing. And he was a big gambler and threw money around, and everybody kind of liked Bill. He was a flashy dresser, and this is, this is real. In any event, he was um, uh, the character written about in the Gangs of New York book is uh, uh, certainly one of the uh, more flamboyant, I think one of the first really flamboyant, I put quotes around the word gangster because gangster we think of today, uh, thinking in terms of the 20th century, I think of. Uh, uh, these guys were uh, way before that, and they represented something different, and something different in the country was something different too, really. The country was still being formed. Um, and so I think... Um, they had gangs. I think the gangs were loosely formed, too. I think gang members could be, in terms of the Irish gangs, a gang member could go from the Swamp Angels to the, uh, to the Dead Rabbits, maybe, and back and forth to others. Uh, you had some people turning sides, too, certainly, like the way Happy Jack does in, as a policeman in, uh, in uh, Gangs of New York, the film. But Bill Poole was pretty much known at the time as, as a, a very, very powerful force for Native Americans. And I don't mean the Indian Native American. I mean the Anglo-Dutch... I should, it probably is maybe unfair to say Anglo-Dutch because I, I think uh, whatever that American stock was that came from uh, the 17th century and had made a foothold here in America and fought in the Revolution and fought in the War of 1812, that was considered, in a sense, a nativist American, I think. I think. Um, of course, I, I wanted to make him a main character in the story. And um, when, I, when I realized that I wanted to have However the story was going to play itself out, I wanted it to be against the backdrop of the draft riots. And the draft riots lock us into a, an historical date that we can't, um, we can't take liberty with. Um, I have Bill Poole dying at that time in 1863, but it's quite evident. It was known, the factual evidence, that he died in 1856 or 1857, shot at the Stanwix Hotel, which had just been open a week or so, on Broom and Spring. I think from Mr. Baker, with some sort of basically sort of a barroom brawl situation and Baker went back to went out and left and said he'd be back to shoot him and he took him about three hours to find a gun and nobody would go back with him either he was trying to get all these people to go back and fight and, and he came back and there was uh, more kind of rowdiness and fighting and eventually um, guns went off and um, Bill got shot but he didn't die for five days and this is Bill Poole and during that five days his friends were sort of realizing to well first of all they were trying to I think work out his last words, his last statement, and they came up with, goodbye boys, thank God I die a true American. That's what he supposedly said. Um, and um, he, he, in a sense, you can stretch it and say he had the first great gangland funeral. Apparently there were 10,000 people who attended and uh, this extraordinary amount of flowers and wagons going by. And so what they tried to do was to make an example of, um, of him as a nativist martyr, in a way, being assassinated by, by Irishmen. Um, we changed his name to Bill Cutting because the, the Daniel character is just an amalgam, uh, combination of a number of, of uh, tough characters of that time in the 1850s in New York. Um, but the fact that Bill Poole was the head of the native, was a major nativist and a bigot, and, uh, uh, but considered himself a real American, a true American, uh, this was important. I thought that uh, we would change the name and use, use this. Uh, we only changed the name to be technically uh, in the clear. Mr. Galoran will work out the details. Thank you, gentlemen. That's how we do things around Tammany, gentlemen.
Who's this, then? Thank you, boys. Good day, sir. Got something on your mind? Bill's taken quite a liking to you. Now, if you're up to something, then it. Only I don't want no part of it. In terms of Michael Powell and Emma Pressburger films, there's no doubt that I don't know where I could tell you that it's very specific uh, where the influence is in this particular film. But I think the theater scene with the assassination attempt, uh, the stovepipe hats in that scene, particularly the 400 men in the orchestra with stovepipe hats on, uh, the nature of what everybody looks like on the stage, um, the, the set of um, Satan's Circus, the look in Bill's place. Uh, the nature of Bill the Butcher's villainy. Uh, it's gotten to the point where I think so much has been digested by me of, his, of, his, of their work that I don't think it's something where it's very specific. I can say this shot or that shot. The, I guess really what you could say is the level of theatricality is something I think that uh, comes from being enamored of their work and therefore being uh, strengthened by it to go ahead and try something on that level. Uh, as, for example, the performance of Bill the Butcher, going all the way back for me to some of the more outrageous performances in the Powell Pressburger pictures, the movement of the ballet dancers in uh, uh, Red Shoes, and particularly Tales of Hoffman, Robert Helpman, Leonid Massine. Look at Red Shoes when Leonid Massine quits. Watch as he's walking along with um, Anton Volbrook. There's a spotlight, and he's, pr he's practicing in the spotlight, but uh, he has to tell Boris that he's quitting and uh, spotlight uh, moves away from him and he says the spotlight always on me toujours sur moi <laughs> they put it back on him even though he's just talking in a personal conversation and look at the nature of the, the way they move the body language of Anton Warbrook and Levy Massine in, in that picture for example in that one scene alone so it's always sort of stuck in my head I mean I don't, I don't know anything about ballet I don't really work with ballet dancers or any dancers really but there's something about the way Bill walks the spindly legs like a spider you know uh, and the nature of his enjoyment of his own theatricality, you know, and even Amsterdam's enjoyment of it too. Uh, the sense of Amsterdam's somewhat debauched life as he's living with Bill, his degeneration to a certain extent, particularly when he gets up and he, when he realizes Jenny is something more to Bill than just an acquaintance, and uh, he toasts Bill. I love the way he stands in that frame and his, the look on his face and his sense of weaving back and forth. It's almost like a fever dream. He doesn't know where he is at that point. Uh, but he knows his feelings. <laughs> and so that all that, that comes out of it. It comes out of the Paul Pressburger work. That night, the reformers held a dance. That was the five points, all right. Hangings of a morning, dancings of an evening. Sure, myself, but... It's not a matter of words. I can tell by the way she smiles. Sure. Well, she smiles with a lot of people, John. Sir, you don't know her. A penny of gratitude for fighting Irishman young, sir. You from Kerry? I am, sir. I am. Well, I think it's hard for people to understand now, but as soon as they get off, as soon as they got off the boat, there was no place for them to go. Um, they couldn't really generate a salary in a way. Um, 
uh, they had to go find work. Uh, and I think it seemed natural to go into the cheapest area of New York, and that was the Five Points. And it was considered the, the world's worst slum. Um, and there was a place in the Five Points that became very famous called the Old Brewery. I think it was an 18th century brewery, and it was kind of uh, ramshackle at that, by the time of the turn of the century, the 19th century. And basically, it became a place where uh, people just went in and lived, um, squatters in a sense. And, uh, but it was such a warren, that apparently, nobody really knows what it looked like inside, but apparently it was such a warren of rooms and caves and underground passages and uh, the, the romantic image that comes out of it um, is one of like a uh, strange kind of subterranean existence uh, where people would just find a way to, to, to find a little corner in there and live as best they could. And um, many were afraid to come out because of uh, gangs of, of nativists who would be roving around trying to beat up the, uh, the new, latest immigrants who came in. But uh, the place also became famous for its um, uh, the names it gave different areas of the, the old brewery, the Murderers, Murderers Alley, uh, Brickbat Mansion, and places like that, um, uh, names like that, I should say. But in any event, it was, it was really, I guess, something that's quite unimaginable. And it seemed to me that everybody was living inside the brewery, which was also maybe three or four stories high, but also had an underground. Uh, and because when they went into um, to um, actually uh, kind of um, renovate, or actually... I think gutted the place. I'm not quite sure exactly what they did, but when they made the mission in the 1850s of the uh, of the old brewery, they discovered um, uh, graves under there. They discovered bodies and all sorts of things. Apparently, according to uh, uh, historians at the time, but you have to understand the historians of the period. I mean, a place like this um, uh, could be exaggerating to a certain extent. Um, one doesn't know really what happens in an area like that. You don't know who's winning, which gang is winning. And what are they winning, ultimately, when they fight? Serious news, news um, uh, papers didn't uh, really deal with that area very much. Um, it was kind of cut off and forgotten about. It became known as the greatest slum in, in the world. Charles Dickens visited the slum when he came to America in his, in his book, American Notes, 1851 or 1852. He describes going to the Five Points and saying it was worse than anything in, in London, worse than the East End, if you read Oliver Twist or, you know. Great expectations. You get a sense of what what he it may, may have, must have boggled the mind. Uh, Davy Crockett um, visited the place. He he found it extremely unnerving. He preferred the woods. He said it was really dangerous. And of course, uh, Abraham Lincoln went there the first day or two that he was here to give the speech at Cooper Union. Um, and by that time, the old brewery had become a mission, and that became the the sense of a, a kind of a sense of how should I put it. A reforming of the place, but it was it was almost impossible to reform. Um, it had to take waves of um, a cycle had to be lived through in a way. Ultimately, until after the Civil War, and I think what ultimately did it, I think, is that Jacob Rees started taking photographs in the 1870s, and a lot of attention was brought down to that area, and not just the Five Points, but that whole Lower East Side, and and the condition of and the and the the the, uh, the nature of what the poor in America is really like, particularly at that time. And, uh, uh, but prior to 1860, I think that place could be, you can imagine anything, I would think, and you'd be almost halfway accurate.
Well, I think I think it's important to understand the know-nothings, the wide awakes, and generally what we call the Native American, not the Native American of the Indians. These were the Europeans who settled, who fought the British, pretty much. Um, not everybody agreed on that revolution. Uh, there were some people, there were families divided, there were cities divided. It was it was it was quite a a miracle that we made it through, in terms of uh, as a as a, as a uh, continental army almost didn't exist. So it's a miracle that, that we came out of that with the uh, with our independence. Um, and uh, m many of the, uh, the people who were uh, the next generation of those who fought in the revolution and those uh, original colonists felt that America was now achieved. Uh, it was individual freedom, was separation of church and state, and they were, uh, there, were, there were battles as to within the cabinet and within uh, in the country in terms of uh, what kind of a country it still should be. I mean, basically making the country work, making the democracy work. Uh, there was obviously uh, different ideas of what, a, what the country should be and what government should be. Jeffersonian, Alexander Hamilton, all the different ideas. And so um, uh, we find that I don't believe that many of the founding fathers or founding brothers had in mind such extraordinary waves of immigration coming into America. They didn't, I don't think they understood that. Um, they never had that really, I don't think they could see that far into the future. And so uh, when it happened, uh, you're, you're in a way, I'm not generalizing, but when it happened, you, you had a situation where a lot of people were suddenly shocked by this and said, this isn't what the country's supposed to be. These are foreign invaders. In fact, we have a, we have a, a flag, an American flag in the film that uh, has writing on it as a, that says, uh, Native Americans beware of foreign invaders. And that's a flag of the period. Beware of foreign invaders, because they will destroy our system, and we paid for it with our blood for this system. And one understands, too, you know, you fight and you struggle. Just to get in a boat to get over here is a major achievement. And then to get here and to fight to get the land, and then to work on a society, and then fight a revolution. And then, I mean, one of the key things one of the key things about America, of course, is the fact that it, wanted to, it wants to be so different. It was meant to be so different from everything was, they were escaping in Europe. Uh, religious wars, uh, unfair uh, monarchy, that sort of thing. So that um, uh, one can understand the, uh, the, the, the pressure um, when um, what they fought for in their minds was going to be uh, compromised or uh, changed by bringing in the things they, they ran away from. The things they, they the things they uh, rejected, and uh, uh, you know they, there were many who were not open-minded about that, and so they called themselves Native Americans, Anglo-Dutch stock mainly, uh, uh, whose families have fought in the revolution and everything else, and they created this country. And uh, why should let anybody else in? You know they had the slaves at that point, a lot of the freed slaves coming up from the south, uh, and then all of a sudden these these waves of Irish were coming in extraordinary number of them coming in weekly from the 1840s to the 1870s. The fact that uh, they were very poor, uh, escaping a famine in Ireland at the time. That, and they weren't being helped in Ireland, by the way. A million died, I believe. Some were reduced to cannibalism. But uh, the countries around them didn't help. England didn't help. Uh, I understand that, that there were some shipments of wheat from America, on, with, with the, along with the British, had worked that out. But it was far too late, too, too little too late. And so many of them, rather than starving and being reduced to nothing, took a boat and came to America, and they got off in New York. And uh, some went out to the Midwest, but the majority of them were so dirt poor that they had to stay in New York. And there's no place, uh, the only the only place that could inhabit that could uh, that could uh, uh, envelop the poor 
uh, was an area called the Five Points and, and, and further areas that were just not even called anything, shanty towns, basically. I mean, the city was still being built, in a way. And nobody really had what the city should look in mind. And nobody, nobody really had in mind what the city should ultimately look like, either. They still don't. So <laughs> there's no urban planning. So people are still doing it. The city is still making itself. It's never finished. It's like ancient Rome. I think one of the senator, one of the, um, one of the great ancient writers said Rome would be a wonderful place when they, when they finish building it. You know, same thing with New York. So um, none of the nativists uh, figured this would happen. Not only that, they were poor. Uh, they had no skills. Didn't speak English for the most part. Spoke Gaelic. And they were Catholic. And even though um, this is a country uh, that... that it says that uh, basically claims that there's a religious freedom. It still had to, it still was a struggle. It still was a struggle for, for Catholics and for ultimately other religions. And it's a struggle today for other religions, as we know. And um, uh, mainly because people feel that they're going to threaten our way of life. And uh, this is a, a real question, even more alive today than it was in the 1840s and 1850s. And so uh, what they mean by threatening the way of life is that they listen. To, they listened to a foreign power. At the time, the Vatican was a very strong foreign power. It still is to a certain extent today, but even stronger then, we think, uh, as, as I recall uh, from what I've read. And uh, how does that work, you say? Well, uh, they can vote in America. Well, they're not educated. Well, the church, has, the church has representatives here in America. They're the archbishops. Well, what does that mean? Well, the archbishop will then tell the uneducated masses of Irish how to vote. That means the Vatican will influence American elections and we'll lose our freedom. That's ultimately what it's about. I don't see no Americans. I see trespassers. Irish hops do a job for a nickel, what a nigger does for a dime, and a white man used to get a quarter. I think that first great influx of immigration from Ireland was the first great test of what America's supposed to be. This bring us your homeless and your poverty-stricken and uh, those who are oppressed, etc., come to our country and, you know, become a citizen. And, and work with us. And, uh, but there were so many, so fast, and for such a prolonged period of time that it, it created that who has the right to be here situation, which is uh, something that we deal with every day, I think, in America. My father gave his life making this country what it is. Murdered by the British with all of his men on the 25th of July, Anno Domini 1814. You think I'm gonna help you befoul his legacy? Like giving this country over to them was had no hand in the fighting for it. Why, because they come off a boat crawling with lice and begging you for soup? You're a great one for the fighting, Bill, I know. But you can't fight forever. I can go down doing it. And you will. Uh, we condensed, in a sense, dramatically condensed visually, um, what it could have been like uh, for an Irishman to come over uh, to New York, uh, suddenly find himself um, not be able to get a job, to uh, see a very attractive offer from the army, which could be three meals a day and that sort of thing, and suddenly find himself with a gun, getting on a boat, and then unfortunately being killed in the very next battle, uh, having to become a citizen in between that, by the way. Um, in a sense, of course, that's a condensation of what must have really occurred. But in a way, um, we think it might as well have been that way. We don't say it was, but it might as well have been that way, that simple. Citizen, soldier, go get your gun, Here's your gun, don't let it get dry. Here's your uniform, get on the boat. Oh, by the way, uh, be careful when you get on the boat, there are coffins of other soldiers coming off. And in a sense, it, it, we did it uh, to have that dramatic impact, because uh, in reality, it could have taken several weeks or certainly maybe, certainly days before they could have gone through the process of being citizen to, uh, to a soldier. But 
um, and certainly getting killed. And we don't say all the Irish immigrants got killed who became soldiers either. But, um, you know, it was not a bad deal, three meals a day. And I don't, I don't mean that ironically either. I mean, you know, they couldn't get jobs. What were they going to do? You have a chance. You stay alive. But nobody understood what war is. They don't have, they don't really have pictures. They don't, we don't see. Uh, they were just beginning to get black and white photographs being made uh, by um, Matthew Brady and his, and his school of, of photographers down the Civil War. What happens at the finish, then? Then we have ourselves a rowdy battle. And you've never been to the theater before. Uh. Mr. Legree, lay down your whip! Was one of the aspects of life in the, uh, the underworld of the city that I wanted to show was what theater events would be like. In those days, it was, it was common for um, different factions to show up at the theater and um, react violently to what was going on on the stage to make a, uh, to make a uh, demonstration, so to speak. And you often had different factions fighting it out right on the stage and in the theater. And of course, uh, it's sort of a reference to the famous, there's a famous theater riot um, called the Astor Place Theater Riot, 1859, if I'm not mistaken, in which 21 innocent people were killed outside, which had to do with a British actor doing Shakespeare or an American actor. And the working classes and the poor Americans in New York preferred the American actor. The upper classes wanted the British actor, and the British actor appeared, and there was a, a riot, and it was outside an Astor Place, and for some reason, the, it was the army out there, and they opened fire, and 21 innocent people had nothing to do with the theater, and just walking in the streets were killed in Astor Place. Women and children, too. Um, when, in many books I read about that riot, and in some they point out the Astor Place riot was your average theater riot at first until it turned ugly outside, which meant that if historians today are referring to it as their average theater riot, that means that the theater apparently was a place where you just didn't go and sit down and be quiet and have a good night and go out for dinner and, uh, you know, and sit and enjoy a wonderful play. No, it was a place for demonstrations. If the plays represented certain political points of view and political positions, and if people disagree with that, they were very, first, not only throwing fruit and rotten vegetables, but then maybe getting on the stage. Uh, there, there's a several paintings, everybody standing on stage in the 1820s all the way up to, all the way up to the turn of the century, 1900s. The other thing is that we thought it would be interesting to put on a very well-meaning play to Uncle Tom's Cabin at the Five Points Mission, knowing full well the nativist groups would be totally against it. Then when you see the stage production itself, it was pretty common for white people to play blacks in blackface. In fact, the great American performer at the time was a man named Dan Rice. He um, was amazing, apparently. Uh, several books have been written on him now uh, at the moment. And he was amazing in, in, uh, in terms of his improvisatory uh, ability. Um, one of the reviews I read of one of the books uh, compared him, let's say, to a Robin Williams of, of that time. who was able to just talk and move and improvise into any character, you know. However, he also created the character of Jim Crow. So you see where this is going. It's just simply, which then became the minstrel shows. Uh, in a sense, I may be oversimplifying it, but that was a that was a common um, uh, slavery was still was still was still in existence, and that was a common device that was used on the stage, um, and um, uh, the addition of Abraham Lincoln was something that Jay Cox had put in uh, to make direct reference to the war, and the idea of literally trying to heal both sides of the nation, but having the poor man hang there like a, a, a god coming from heaven 
was, uh, was Jay's idea, which I thought was interesting because he would be sort of stuck up there, Lincoln, as an icon, um, at the mercy of uh, those who disliked him. And there were a lot of people who disliked him at the time, as you know. Shakespearean. What? Do you know who Shakespeare was, Sonny? He was a fellow who wrote the King James Bible. Mister, I don't know what in the hell you're yeah, talking about. Because you're a thick, ignorant, barbarous Irish whelp, just like your father. Um, in the process of the making of the film, the evolution of the film, we determined how much the, the prominence of the personal story against the backdrop of the history. We determined uh, the, uh, the different uh, formula each time. Uh, and different drafts of the script while I was shooting the picture, while I was editing many different times, and it finally only came down to ultimately the last two months of editing, where I finally feel I got at the right level, uh, the right, uh, the right proportions. But I do think that the, the foreground story of fictional characters, the characters represent groups of people, and I think we could be safe in assuming that ultimately what the character, uh, the character of Amsterdam, Leo DiCaprio represents, is ultimately the next generation of the Irish immigrant the next generation who will begin to assimilate, who will be accepted by the society, as opposed to the first generations who came here in the 1840s and 1850s uh, that had a very difficult time assimilating. Not that he was going to have an easier time, but he was going to be part of the new city, of the new, the new government, so to speak. And, and up against this backdrop, uh, up, against this, uh, up against this struggle uh, for ultimately what will become assimilation is the Civil War, in which the whole country is redefining itself in the first place. But in any event, uh, in determining fictional characters, we try to take a character that represents certain, um, certain currents of that period, uh, represents certain movements, uh, have certain beliefs. In the case of Amsterdam, uh, he's mired, he's kind of rooted in a tribal struggle, which when law and order, or as I should say, a more civil civilization breaks down, we tend to break down into ultimately uh, tribes um, and everything that takes with it. Everything that, everything that takes with it, ritual, religion, becomes, um, religion becomes something that you fight with, not for. It becomes, uh, the cross becomes a sword. And from that, I'm very interested in how society breaks down, and when it builds up again, what form does it take first? Family unit, to tribe, to groups of people, political parties, etc. ultimately. But um, Amsterdam represents the cross between that, from the ancient to the new, to a certain extent. But in order to become the new, he has to fight through the ancient. He has to go through the old r blood rituals of the ancient and live that out. He's also, in the, for in the foreground of the story, um, fighting ultimately to become a young man, which means he's got to fight the image he has of his own father, which is partially Liam Neeson, but mainly Daniel Day-Lewis's character in the film, and ultimately becoming a, uh, becoming a citizen of the new city. Um, uh, the dramatic device that, that drives the narrative um, is one of revenge. The young boy comes back from the House of Reform, sent away for 15 years. Uh, not a reform school, but a House of Reform, which, I, which is a place where they really uh, uh, treated kids pretty tough, in a way, uh, kids who had no parents and that sort of thing, and um, loses some of his original Irish accent in the process, because accents were affected in New York. They spoke many different accents, they had many different languages, um, and uh, basically wants to kill, get revenge, on Bill the Butcher for killing his father in an earlier 
uh, gang war in 1846. Um, it's very tribal, very primitive, uh, but that, that, uh, that uh, revenge drives him and drives the story. However, uh, to take revenge uh, in, in a case like that, one has to make sure that people know you're taking revenge. revenge. They have to see it. They have to know it. They have to understand. It's got to be ritualized. It's got to be, it's got to be symbolic almost. And you've got to do it where everybody can see you. So therefore, I figured the story should be about a young boy who has to insinuate himself and uh, earn Bill's trust before he takes him and makes makes a uh, makes a makes a show of it uh, in killing uh, Bill the Butcher for everything Bill the Butcher represented too. I don't know if Amsterdam is uh, as open-minded, or not as open-minded, but I don't know if Amsterdam at the beginning of the story is as cognizant of the struggle of the Irish of the Irish immigrant is cognizant of what he could be capable of. Ultimately, he develops that and he just he discovers that halfway or two thirds into the picture how he could change and actually not only just silence one of the Native Americans but silence the whole group in a way and assimilate, uh, allow for assimilation, um, and that is to to ultimately unify the the Irish American um, in New York. He sort of symbolizes a whole group of people that were doing that at the time, along with the help of the church, to the Catholic Church, but. In terms of finding revenge, getting the revenge on Bill the Butcher, he has to gain, gain the Butcher's trust, but also what also comes into uh, play, he didn't count on one thing, and that is his need, his, his heart. He didn't count on his, uh, the feelings he'd have for Jenny Everdeen, whom he met in, uh, earlier in the picture. I think uh, Jenny is a character, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because ultimately she does represent something that, um, in a way, part of his digression is Jenny. Part of his realization of his feelings, his human feelings, his emotion, uh, his his feelings of love, his feelings of uh, of nurturing, almost uh, come because of meeting Jenny. He fights against it at first, and that, of course, is complicated by her relationship with Bill, which makes it even more upsetting for him. But um, he gets he gets passionate with, about her and passionate about Bill. It's almost as if uh, he, he, it's true that he has he's suffered this loss of a father figure and. Bill is so charismatic, the man he's going to kill, that Bill, ultimately, after a while, takes the place of that father. And then, he's, then, then Sam is faced with the reality that he has to kill him because his father's ghost, the, the, the blood father, you know, in his mind has, has told him that this is what has to be done according to tribal custom. And he's got to readjust himself to kill this man whom he's finding himself attracted to, in a way, as a father, in a way. A man who needs, a son who needs a father and a father who needs a son. That's why I think... Uh, he hasn't really thought beyond killing Bill. Um, that's why he finds himself in conflict when uh, he has these feelings for Jenny and these feelings for Bill. Um, after the confrontation, he has to find another way of doing them in. Uh, and he's got a big conflict, really, after the con that first confrontation between Bill and him in the, in the big pagoda, Sparrow's Chinese pagoda, midway through the film. Afterwards, he's got to sort of rebuild himself, be reborn, and rethink everything, and ultimately finds a, a, a way within the American system, which is politics. But then, of course, that is cut short, too. And he's forced back into a kind of primal state. And then, as they're working it out, uh, the world changes that situation for them. <laughs> makes them almost antique, in a way. Uh, uh, I should say, uh, makes them obsolete, ultimately. And those ways, obsolete. Yeah. Bill the Butcher, on the other hand, complicate matters. Um, when he killed Amsterdam's father in the early battle scene, is uh, uh, we find that uh, 
there's a hatred uh, for the enemy between the two, between Bill the Butcher and uh, Priest Valen, uh, and Sam's father. But there's also an extraordinary respect, respect between the two men, uh, sort of respect that two gladiators would have for each other, great fighters, men of honor. I disagree totally what you believe, but I respect your right to believe it. I'm going to fight you for it. I'm going to kill you for it. But I admire your conviction. I also admire your style. And um, so Bill the Butcher has this extraordinary affection for the man he killed. I killed the last honorable man 15 years ago since then. You've seen his portrait downstairs? Mm-hmm. Your mouth all glued up with Connie juice. I asked you a question. I said I seen it, sir. <laughs> oh, you got a murderous rage in you. I like it. Oh, it's life boiling up inside of you. It's good. priest and me, we lived by the same principles. It was only faith divided us. He gave me this, you know. That was the finest beating I ever took. My face was pulp. My guts was pierced. My ribs was all mashed up. When he came to finish me, I couldn't look him in the eye. He spared me because he wanted me to live in shame. This was a great man. Great man. Sent it to him wrapped in blue paper. I would have cut them both out if I could afford him blind. And I rose back up again with a full heart and buried him in his own blood. Well done. He's the only man I ever killed worth remembering. never had a son. Civilization is crumbling. I, I kept asking everybody, all of my collaborators, to go for the most. In other words, uh, to give me the most history, uh, anthropology, uh, story, action, all the time, in every scene, as much as possible. And um, that was the tension in making the picture, and also in the production itself, naturally. Uh, uh, this costs money. You know, and after a certain point, one has to deal with the fact of how much money you have left, or none at all, 
So, uh, and then when you really get down to it, you have to, uh, you have to decide what's really important. Um, Jay Cox is an old friend of mine from 1968, and so when he was a Time Magazine film reviewer, and over the years he did two, he did several drafts of the script, and then ultimately in 1999 did a few more. But ultimately, uh, Steve Zalian was uh, called in. Uh, Steve and Zalian and I had worked together on other projects. And um, he gave us, he said he'd be on for a couple of months or six weeks or so, but he stayed about six months and working with me on, on recreating structure, restructuring, I should say, um, trying to balance the history with the personal story and that sort of thing. And ultimately, he had to go and work on his own film. And Kenny Lonigan uh, was flying to Rome on his honeymoon. And uh, so we said, come and visit us. We wanted to talk to him. <laughs> so we sort of said, why don't you just stay here for you know, just a few days and play around with some things, some ideas we have. And, and then, of course, uh, that's what happened. He stayed for a few months and uh, uh, back and forth flying to New York and working together on fax machines and telephones and that sort of thing. But ultimately, ultimately with Kenny, we did more character work, particularly on Amsterdam and Jenny. That was the key thing. And that, that happened, I think, four weeks before shooting started. In the middle of this, a couple of times, was a wonderful writer named Hossein Amini. And uh, he was brought in by uh, Harvey to help me out. Um, in certain periods where we were moving between the major writers. And uh, he worked with me in December of 99 for a few weeks. But his main uh, endeavor at the time was working on Four Feathers. So it was very hard for him to follow through. Build a butcher's accent. Uh, once again, we wanted to uh, play with certain aspects of uh, what we know to be historical fact and what could have been possible at that time and what, what existed at that time. Because as today, New York uh, back then is very much a multilingual um, city. You could hear anything in New York today. You stand on a street corner, you hear um, Pakistan, uh, Jamaica, um, any place from Asia, uh, and it goes on and on with, within the original language plus accented when they try to speak, when they're speaking English. So that at that time, this was a similar case. And um, for Bill the Butcher's accent, we had to, to create it. Tim Monick and Daniel Day-Lewis had to create it. And they had two, they had two examples. One example was there is a, a wax cylinder of Walt Whitman reciting four lines from one of his poems about New York that exists. 
and they listened to it. And uh, Walt Whitman used the phrase ample streets, the ample streets of New York. And when he said ample, he said, instead of saying ample the way, we're saying, the way we normally would say it now, his accent was ample, the ample streets. Oh, that's one thing. The other thing was that Louis Auchincloss told me when I, after I had finished Age of Innocence that Mrs. Jones, whom Mrs. Mingott is based upon in the film, in reality, Mrs. Jones' accent was much more, uh, much more interesting, he said. For example, she would uh, say uh, things like, um, don't forget to take your poils, goyles. So now you have ample poils and goyles. And it begins to sound like a New York East Side or a 1940s or 1930s taxi cab driver, a taxi driver, uh, you know, uh, a real New York dead-end kid's accent. And that's what we based it upon. Um, also, we found uh, there are many plays that are still in existence uh, in print of, uh, that were performed in the Bowery about the Bowery Boys, uh, which was a nativist gang, mainly. That's why they don't, they don't feature very, very strongly in this picture. But um, uh, it's all written out. All the slang is written out and how they spoke. We see the way the words are written. Boyos is B-H-O-Y-S. The, 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 names and the, uh, the names of the people and, of course, the, the jargon, or I should say the... Um, uh, uh, they, they really had their own language. It was called the Rogues. Uh, it was written, in eight, written up in 1859 by an ex-police an ex chief into a collection called the Rogues Lexicon. And we use a lot of those words in the film. And uh, in some cases, we could have done more, but it was almost, you would have to have subtitles. And so uh, Daniel worked with Tim Monarch on, on, on that basis of uh, getting that uh, 1940s and 1930s New York accent, um, uh, which would develop, I think, from the upper classes down to the working classes. Um, Toid and Toid, instead of 33rd Street and 3rd, uh, Poils for Goyles, you know, that sort of thing. So you, you, it's, it's almost something that's not, not heard, it's certainly not heard anymore, but that's how we developed it. And then read aloud, uh, read aloud passages from the Bible constantly, and uh, Tim would uh, perfect it. So they created it themselves um, based on, this, based on these, uh, these points. Also, in New York at that time, uh, Leo DiCaprio's accent is, is less Irish. Um, than uh, some of the other characters, mainly because for 15 years he was in a, a house of reform, um, which uh, in which he was around uh, other people, not Irish necessarily, uh, uh, who uh, Dutch and uh, German and that sort of thing, English, uh, who would, uh, in which case his accent would be corrupted. Um, Henry Thomas's accent is a little more Irish. He's, he stayed in the five points. Cameron Diaz's accent wouldn't be as Irish either because she was raised by the nativists, so it would be corrupted also. Um, Shang, played by um, Stephen Graham, he comes from Liverpool. You have, you have a variety of accents all that time, very much the way New York was now, and that's the way we worked it out. Uh, when we had to discuss the, when we had to decide on an Irish accent, we, um, I think, decided on a country accent rather than Dublin, because it's a less melodic.
She butchers and pledges. Oh, butchers and pranks. Come on, performance! A command performance in thee! I want you to get out of here, don't you? And for this, I must beg the indulgence of my former assistant in matters of impalement. The butcher's original apprentice. What do you say, Jen? One more time for the sweet souvenir. Come on. feel more comfortable without that garment, Miss Everdeen. You'll have to filch me a new one, Bill. Anything in your pockets tonight? Oh, I ain't started working yet. about that locket that I gave you. Apologies, my dear. Pick it up. Whoopsie, Daisy! Now it's good and broke. I can't seem to get anything right tonight. You got the sand to give them a grand finale? Maybe when you're aiming a little straighter. And I think throughout the entire film, the biggest problem was to balance the historical accuracy when we wanted to with the dream effect of the picture, um, a kind of heightened reality, a kind of surreality in a way. Um, when Bill throws the knives at Jenny and uh, Amsterdam, um, Amsterdam makes the first attempt to try to kill Bill. And ultimately, when he throws that knife at the pagoda, at Bill, he, miss, uh, he, he loses out. He's pummeled almost to death. And basically, um, at a moment when, uh, at a moment that seems, uh, how should I put it, basically the scene is shot at first realistically, but then as the people are shouting out different names of different, or different titles to, uh, 
the knife act to the uh, what they call acts of impalement. <laughs> Uh, ultimately, um, Bill's speech about what should I take from him, what should I cut, uh, the loin, the, uh, the ribs, and somebody yells the heart. And then he says, this boy has no heart. And then someone yells, kill him. It's almost like a nightmare. It's not quite real anymore. In fact, that pagoda was based on uh, a set that was designed by Boris Levin, whom I had the honor of working with a number of times on the, uh, New York, New York, Last Waltz, um, uh, King of Comedy, Color of Money, and... Uh, uh, he even started in the first the first attempt at Last Temptation of Christ, actually. Uh, and Boris was a great production designer who designed Giant by George Stevens and West Side Story, um, uh, uh, Robert Wise and Robbins film. And of course, uh, he started in the 30s. And he has something to do with the design of a wonderful set in a film directed by Joseph von Sternberg, which, which I think is his best film without Marlena Dietrich, called The Shanghai Gesture. And I think it was, I think it was 1940s, early 40s, with uh, Gene Tierney and Victor Mature and. Uh, takes place in Shanghai, and it's quite quite unique. And again, a, a very a sense of heightened reality. Where you're in a place, um, Madame uh, Jin Sling's place in Shanghai, where anything could happen. And that's the way I wanted to. Uh, that's the five points I wanted to create too, which was a place that anything could happen, um, real, surreal, imagined, not imagined, um, because no one really knows. No one really knows what what that place was really like. I think. Uh, what would be a modern ex what would be a modern equivalent uh, a uh, uh, I, I really don't I, I, probably uh, yeah, Don DeLillo's Underworld in that novel there's uh, several sections towards the end which describe an inner city nightmare uh, of, of a place to live in and uh, um, whatever we can imagine uh, believe me doing the research over these many years it was much worse you know and so um, uh, that was designed that way based on the set that Boris Levin had designed in uh, Shanghai Gesture uh, to heighten the, uh, the reality of the picture and to make, bring it into a fever dream, really, is what we wanted to, to achieve. Uh, this is the balancing between history and, history and, and uh, historical accuracy and, and um, imagination. Um, uh, they claim that many Chinese, not that many, they claim that, that there weren't that many Chinese in New York at the time in the 1860s particularly late 1850s, early 1860s. They claim it was later. Based on what? Well, they, one of the technical advisors told me that, well, the first registered Chinese person was 1870 or something. And so what, what, how did you know that? And so, well, they opened up a cigar shop on Canal Street. I said, but that's the first registered one. We have no idea. So, well, certainly, so we took that idea and we, we said, what if there were more Chinese there? And I took that also from reading some of Herman Melville uh, books like books about his voyages of Redburn and White Jacket and things like that, describing the New York uh, waterfront, uh, where, believe me, uh, there were many, many types of people there at that time, not recorded. When they died, who knows where they buried them. Potter's Field didn't come into existence until later. In any event, it's a combination, pulling the film together was a combination of how much historical accuracy I really wanted to deal with and how much of an opera we want to create. Historians, uh, the historians, we went through many different people. Uh, we've got many opinions on the script. Some understood right away, like Peter Quinn, uh, writer, uh, who understood that uh, he said it's um, an impression of a time. Uh, it's not a documentary, and to let everybody know that. Um, and it, in a sense, it's uh, uh, the truth wrapped up in lies, or what they call faction, a mixture of fact and fiction and uh, enjoyed the audacity of, of the script. He liked that. 
Others, uh, others were more uh, literal about certain things, as pointing out that the first Chinese, uh, first Chinese in New York was in 1870, let's say, I don't know the exact date, because it registered a cigar store as well, you know, that, <laughs> believe me, uh, you know, it, anything could be down that downtown area. Nobody really recorded that area down there. It was just uh, something that they hoped would go away. But in any event, um, Luke Sant, uh, who wrote the definitive book on the underworld in America up to 1920s and 30s, I believe, called Low Life, um, in which he includes Gangs of New York by Herbert Asbury, which is the book that inspired the title of this film, um, and many other sources of uh, books of that kind from the uh, uh, 19th century uh, that were even more sensationalistic, quite honestly, and more dealing with the mythology of New York in a way, um, when New York was uh, up for grabs, so to speak, and the draft riots were considered an insurrection as serious, which they were, it was the greatest riots in American history, um, uh, as serious as the Commune in France in the 1840s. Uh, this was it. The draft riots determined the last vestige of um, major insurrection, so to speak, um, in the city of New York. And after that, this, it became a city after, world, after um, the Civil War. Literally two years later, it became a city. In 1865, the police force was worked out. <laughs> they didn't have rival police forces like municipal and metropolitan police fighting it out all the time. They instituted a fire department. They insisted that horses pull the wagons because men pulled the wagons up to that point. It was more macho to do that. And uh, it was, a, it was a, you know, literally creating a fire department was an important thing because up to that point there were different fire brigades. It was more like fire gangs in a way. Um, and in any event, it, it, this is, uh, Luke Sant was the man to deal with all of this. And one, one, one give you an example of, uh, we would call Luke all the time to ask him, in a scene like this, what would be happening in the street? Now, I know I have a list of things over the years for so many, so many things, but uh, would the, could I have that? Could we move this? And well, that would be more like, and he would give us details, and I would work on the details I wanted, and I ask him if it's valid or not. And then if, if it wasn't invalid, could we take license? with that particular moment, and very often we were able to. But for example, um, Satan's Circus, which is the name of a club uh, or a saloon in the 1880s, I believe, but we moved it up in time for Bills because it's such a wonderful name. Um, and uh, my production designers were talking about printing the name on the window or something. No, 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 that's too, it's too uh, uh, settled, established. Now, this is, this, all this whole place was primitive, and uh, so I asked Luke, and Luke said, well, maybe, he said very often they maybe would have a, a pretty much like the Middle Ages, where a lot of people weren't able to read, so a bakery would have a picture of a piece of bread, uh, you see, so you know that's where you go for bread. So here, he said, maybe a puppet of some sort, or a, a little, and I thought of a, a puppet of Mephistopheles, a uh, little devil puppet, and we based it on a, the puppet used in Edgar G. Omer's film, Bluebeard. Uh, they, did, uh, uh, they did performances of Faust with puppets in that film. Uh, there was also in the DVD uh, some color footage in, taken in the 1940s of that of that film, and I saw that the the actual I saw the actual colors of the puppet, the reds and the blacks, and the, and so I showed it to Dante, and they made up that for me. And then he said they probably would carve the name in the woods. That's what we did. That kind of detail give you an idea, along with the historical uh, the historical facts of how we pulled it together. I often wondered if you'd lived a bit longer. Through his pockets and 
for safekeeping. Thought maybe you could do with it. About 20 some odd years ago, I, I think it was an Alan Lomax documentary I saw on PBS. I, uh, I saw uh, what appeared to be three or four men, African-Americans. Uh, some, had drums wrapped around, some had drums around their necks. And they were playing these drums. And one guy was playing a, a, a fife, a uh, reed pipe. And I never heard anything quite like it. And I, I, I believe I got an audio tape of it. And uh, over the years, I played it. And I always said, that's the kind of music if ever. I did Gangs in New York, that's what it would be. And I found some when um, I started doing the, uh, the work on the, on the script and designing the shots. Uh, and uh, it was given to me, uh, it turned out to be music by Othar Turner and the Rising Sun Band, uh, a uh, fife and drum band in the hills. It's from the hills of Mississippi, not the Delta, this music. And uh, uh, they would have a big party and kill a goat and eat the goat. And it's called, the CD's called Everybody's Hollering Goat. And the song is called Wobble She Wobble. And um, that's the music that I designed most of the film to, that particular piece. It's very often, um, it's very often mistaken for Celtic music because people, you know, people say it's interesting Celtic music at the beginning. Well, no, it's North Mississippi, the hills. It's Othar Turner, who just passed away at 94 a few weeks, two weeks ago. And his daughter, uh, 45 years old, same day. Um, they, they're, featured, they're featured in... Uh, the blues documentary I'm directing. That's part of a blues series that we're doing for PBS. Um, seven directors doing their versions, impressions of the blues. And uh, they were able to get Othar Turner and interview him. Uh, Corey Harris, a modern blues musician, went down to Mississippi and we just edited another sequence of his yesterday of Othar. So he was put on film at least and we got him. Interesting music because it comes, it comes from the fife and drum that was used by the American Revolutionary Forces to um, signal to different groups of different uh, different battle formations to regroup during a battle and so they took that fife and drum that is almost that you see i would think almost that you see in this the famous picture of the of um, that's used uh, to represent the country a uh, 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 little drummer boy a man playing a fife and another man holding a flag i think walking along they're wounded um, that's the music and what the africans uh, took it in north mississippi became something else and it, it's it, it stayed that way and the uh, Othar Turner's uh, daughter died. Unfortunately, she's in the film too, the blues documentary. She's 45. But his granddaughter has been taught how to continue with the, uh, the fife. And uh, so they're, 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 the, the tradition will continue, hopefully. But that music was very important to me. Originally, in 1979, I liked um, I, I had a different kind of... Uh, the film The film had many, many transformations. And I guess as many as I had as a person, really. And it reflects certainly it would have been a different film in 1979 or 80 than it was now. It would be different if I'm alive 10 years from now, if I did it 10 years from now, there's no doubt about it. Uh, my interests happen to shift. But um, at that time, the music that drove the picture, besides the Othar Turner, uh, and going along with the type of, uh, continuing the tradition, that, uh, continuing the nature of the type of, of soundtracks I um, create in my movies, Mean Streets with uh, Mean Streets and 
um, Alice Doesn't Live Anymore and um, Raging Bull and Goodfellas and Casino. It's recorded music of the period in which they're in. In which they're in, and so um, uh, I wanted to do something somewhat different in the late '70s, and to take um, uh, music of the Clash, and uh, you have them write music for the film, and uh, keep that driving beat, almost like a punk rock uh, uh, feeling to the piece, the Ramones, the Clash, but mainly the Clash, I was thinking, and uh, that they would write music for this, and we got together many times, we talked about it, and there was almost in 1981, there was almost a possibility of getting the film made with Arnold Milchin, um, who had just done, uh, who had just produced King of Comedy and uh, with us, uh, but again, the whole industry had changed, and uh, it was too much money for that kind of film, um, and everything, everything had to be rethought, really. But that was the drive there. Maybe the film would have been more uh, graphically violent in the late 70s than it is now. But in any event, um, while I was designing the picture, the Clash music still helped. <laughs> Are you too young to remember your old Uncle Jack? Oh, the times we had. You know I won't hurt you. The first time I worked with Michael Ballhouse was After Hours, 1984-85. Um, he rejuvenated me in terms of working as a director. Prior to that, a lot of the films I had made, two of the films, or three, New York, New York, Raging Bull, and King of Comedy, were, it took about 100 and some odd days to shoot each. And the case of After Hours was 40 nights and 16, 17, 20 setups a, day, a night, which was really good for me, rejuvenated me, and has been a major collaborator uh, on most of my pictures since then. Uh, we have a shorthand. Uh, I design shots in note form or even in little drawings. He then transfers those drawings and, and directions into his, his own book, uh, writes them in German, and then memorizes it and uh, works that way with me. And if we have difficulty, if we have to lose out of 10 setups, we have to lose six, uh, we'll come together and see if we, which are the most important ones to keep and um, that sort of thing. So he's, he's uh, very, very, uh, he knows how I work, knows my temperament, and um, I know his, and he's always a, um, a relaxing, uh, a relaxing force on the set, so to speak. Uh, he's always calm, which is good. Uh, Joe Reedy is also that way, too, and I've worked with him since Color of Money, 1985, and uh, knows uh, the type of actors I, I work with, knows the kind of background action I usually like, and knows what'll work for me and what won't. I mean, I know it's generalizing it, but uh, um, he's pretty much um, sort of a right hand of the operation, in a way. Get all of us together, we ain't got a gang. We got an army. And all you need is a spark, right? Just one spark. Something to wake us all up. As I grew older, I became more interested in history. I realized that our history only went back a couple hundred years. And in Europe and Asia, the history goes back thousands. And so everything that was of the old world in New York, I found fascinating. And, uh, only, only recently, in the past 20 years or so, 15 years, there's been movements for national, for um, uh, city landmarks to be preserved. Um, and it's a pity that so many of the other ones were taken down in the 50s and 60s. But I must say, I must say, I grew up in the Lower East Side, and this is one of the reasons I, I got so fascinated by this story. An old, the old Irish neighborhood, uh, Elizabeth Street and Mott Street and Mulberry, 
And I remember the streets, cobblestone streets, and I remember the streets breaking off into uh, just dust and dirt, into yards and little ramshackle houses that, uh, that may come from the late 18th century, and all these strange things about the old New York that was sort of seeping right out of the ground at the time when I was growing up. Uh, and I knew that uh, St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, which was on, uh, Mott between, uh, on Prince Street between Mott and Mulberry, uh, was, I'm going to put it this way, my neighborhood at that time was Italian. But I knew that St. Patrick was not a national Italian saint. It's an Irish saint. So, and also the, the, school, the, the school I was going to, the elementary school, the Sisters of Charity, the nuns were Irish. And um, it was kind of odd. As I was eight years old, I was wondering why there was that different group. But uh, as I got older, I began to understand and uh, began to realize that this was not, this was a neighborhood in, in, in flux all the time, staying the same in a way, only with the different eth ethnic groups coming in. And uh, the St. Patrick's Old Cathedral was the, verse, the first Catholic cathedral in New York. And it's exactly the, the way it was th at that time. It's surrounded by a big red, uh, red brick wall. And I shot some of Mean Streets outside there, and, uh, and which I also had uh, uh, shown to Dean Tuvalaris, uh, uh, who was the great production designer of The Godfather, uh, when he was doing location scouting for Godfather One, um, I showed him that church and I showed him the interior of the church, the cathedral, and they chose the interior for the sequence where Al Pacino is baptizing the child at the end of Godfather One, and not the exterior but the interior. And uh, but in any event, that 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 was the place, and, and uh, in in a sense, all the Irish migrated there, um, and I heard all these stories, and uh, the first story I heard about this period was about that cathedral. And uh, I was told by somebody down there, I forget, maybe one of the priests, that uh, at one point in time, that church, which was the, the cathedral, which was the first Catholic cathedral in New York, I think it was built 1810, 1812, um, was about to be attacked by uh, the know-nothings who felt that nobody else should come into America. The family fought for it, They're, it's their land, and nobody else comes in, especially people who owe their allegiance to a foreign power and the Irish. Um, was the first great wave of immigration into America, and they owed their allegiance to the Vatican, they felt, nativists felt, because they're Catholic. And uh, so the nativists uh, threatened to attack the church, and when they came down Prince Street, um, as they got closer to the cathedral, they saw the church surrounded by not only the Irish men, but women and children, the whole community. And um, uh, I did some research into, the, into it. I, I really wasn't doing, I didn't know I was doing research, but I went to, public library and, and uh, when I was in high school and did term papers on the church and the history of the church and began to understand figures like Archbishop Hughes and, and others who were so uh, important at the time and, and I realized that this event was, um, it actually took place I think in 1844 and the group of anti-Catholics, much more than anti-Catholic, they're, they're very um, staunch uh, um, uh, chauvinist in a way, about American. They were warned by Archbishop Hughes, who said, uh, if you touch one Catholic church uh, in New York, um, uh, New York will be turned into another Moscow. And he was referring to what the Russians did to Moscow. So when Napoleon came into uh, Moscow, it was already burned down. There was nothing to take. What's a dead rabbit doing with the natives? There's no niggers among the natives. Natives and rabbits is one thing. And uh, so they nativists uh, stopped. They stopped and walked back up to Prince Street to the Bowery and went away. And that was the beginning of, of the, not only the conflict, but the ultimate assimilation, really, and the ultimate settling of everything. But that was early. It was 1844, 1845. And uh, by the time things settled in for the, uh, for the Irish immigrants, it could be the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. So it took a long time. And in a way, they 
uh, we're the vanguard of every other immigrant group that's come into America that continues to come in. They've suffered for them. They've uh, struggled for them. And, and, and so they're great, great formation. They're such an extraordinary uh, uh, role in the formation of this country. Um, in the 19th century, a number of historians have been telling us throughout the making of the film that if democracy didn't work in New York in the 19th century, it uh, wasn't going to work in the rest of the country. Primarily, I still think to a certain amount now, too. I mean, everybody comes into New York, uh, usually become cab drivers, you know, all the different ethnic groups uh, over the period of years, and, and uh, thousands of languages being spoken on one street corner. <laughs> you know, and so an ex to, to, to a certain extent, it is, it is the, the idea of America really being worked out uh, with everyone, different races, colors, and creeds, working together and living together in the same city. It's a touching spectacle. We'll come back when you're ready for us. The past is the torch that lights our way. Where our fathers have shown us the past. To imply the, um, the uh, I should say, the combination of the church and the Irish community, um, making it, uh, uh, the only time you see Bill the Butcher in the film turn away is when he sees them all together at that church. He knows he can't fight that. And that, that implies the, the, uh, the uh, relationship of the church is so important in the Irish American community and how it helped establish the Irish American identity here in America. One of the things one has to understand is that one of the reasons the picture hasn't gotten made for so many years is because of the nature of the look of the film. None of that exists in New York anymore. Even when I did Age of Innocence, which takes place in the 1870s in New York, hardly any of it, certainly in exteriors, exist um, without having to CGI out skyscrapers around. Uh, very little of that exists now. Some interior exists, but nothing really of the five points and the uh, that uh, kind of Wild West feeling, the kind of frontier town feeling downtown. Um, right around Wall Street, Wall Street was, of course, very different, and where the, uh, where the richer and the upper class lived was about five, six blocks away, and Great Jones Street and other streets, very different streets. But um, in the area where the poor were, it was, it was hardly, it was like a shanty town, no sanitation, uh, epidemics, cholera epidemics, uh, overcrowding, crime. Um, looking at all this, I had to put this together in my mind, and I've been working Fortunately, I've been working in the past 10 years with Dante Ferretti, who had worked in the great with the great Italian directors, Fellini and Pasolini, and so many others uh, in Italy, in Rome. And um, I have a sort of close connection with Italian cinema, um, being Italian-American, uh, and being heavily inf influenced by neorealist films in the late 40s, and the Italian New Wave in the late 50s, all the way through the 60s, through the 70s, from Fellini and uh, loving Antonioni's films. and. Uh, uh, Pasolini's films, of course, and his, his writing, and um, uh, Bertolucci, and uh, Bellocchio, and so many others, Visconti, um, and Marino Olmi, all these people, so that 
a lot of these films also in Italy, some of the greatest films that I, that I, I was just passionate about were all shot in Cinecittà, which was the great film studio that Mussolini built in the 30s in Rome. And um, which I think during the war, towards the end of the war, was reduced to a bar barracks for soldiers and then became, a, after, after the war was over, became a refugee camp, etc. But um, the most extraordinary sets, uh, the most extraordinary studio buildings are there. The one is called Stage 5, which is gigantic, in which Fellini shot most of his films and created most of his sets there. Uh, Dante worked with him in his later films. And uh, Godfather II was shot there. So many great films were, were made there. And that, that tradition of Italian uh, craftsmanship and artistry was something that, that I really, really always, I was looking for an excuse to, to find a way to, to be able to work there with them. And Dante, uh, on, uh, when we just started discussing this film, came up with a, a plan, along with Cinecittà itself, uh, because they renovated the studios to give new life to the studio to bring in more more uh, business from around the world uh, to create this world of New York um, at a good price and uh, this all worked out with our with our investors and our backers and the studio uh, we took some of Jacob Reese's photographs of um, of um, the um, slums of New York in the 1870s, but I just took elements of that because the eight by, we're dealing with the five points in the 1850s, early 1860s. Uh, some buildings coming uh, built on top of uh, outcrops of uh, outcrops of rock. I then took that idea, like for example, the outcrop of rock has the barbershop on top that uh, uh, Monk McGinn uh, uh, surveys the neighborhood from. Um, that came from a photograph, and I imagine that we can move that rock and put it there and that sort of thing. Also, I imagine the Satan Circus uh, builds place. Uh, that I wanted to give the appearance of a place that was being built with no plan. There's no plan down there. They just built things as they needed it. And it, was, it was horrible. There was no sanitation. And so behind the bar is a wall of rock with a tree, the roots of a tree uh, emerging from it and covering over the bar. They just kept building around it, you know. Um, and so it was a place uh, in the works, so to speak. It was a frontier town only without wide open spaces. It's all claustrophobic instead. And what you have, really, in Gangs of New York is it's kind of upsetting to say, but it may be the last the, the sets of this size may be the last you'll ever see in the film. Uh, from now on, it'll probably be more CGI, computer-generated. But I don't think sets like this will ever be built again. And the scale of, of the sets, the exterior sets. Interior sets, yes, of course, there'll be bigger sets. But the exterior was the whole area of downtown New York. So that if we wanted to do a scene inside Satan's Circus, let's say, which was Bill the Butcher's place, and we wanted to change it to the barbershop, which was Monk McGinn, uh, that was his place, it was all ready to go because uh, it was all pre-lit, it was ready to go, and we had, uh, uh, we just felt that was our place. And people say, oh, Marty, you spent almost a year in Rome, pre-production and shooting, ah, oh, it must have been great. I said, no, I was in New York. I was in New York. I was living at the Five Points, in effect. I got in a car, went to a house, they took me back, I didn't go anywhere else. I went to a few dinners during, but that's 10 months. The actors, when they get there, it's a real place. The more the weather hit us, the, the, the better the buildings looked. You know, the mud in the street got worse. The pigs got bigger. They were small, the pigs at first. Then they got really big after about a month or two. So we had to bring in new ones. But, uh, you know, it was, it was very much a, uh, a feeling of being in a, at home in a way. George Lucas was there visiting me uh, when he was shooting Star Wars in uh, Caserta in Italy and he came by and he, was, he loved the sets. He was impressed by them greatly. Then he, he had an assistant with him. He says, get a picture of the two of us. 
and it was on the corner of the five points. There was nobody in the streets. It was, it was in pre-production. And uh, it was a wide shot, and George on one side, me on the other. And Paradise Square in the background, all the buildings in the background. And uh, I took the picture, a little snapshot. And he said, on one side is the old, the other side is the new. Of course, he's the new, in the sense that these sets will never be built again. And he said that ultimately, everyone will realize that it's going to be ultimately cheaper to do them on CGI. And eventually, sets like this are just going to be impossible to make in terms of money. But he really felt that uh, it was wonderful, and it was uh, it was like going sticking back into the beginnings of making movies, like in the early 20th century. Silent films had gigantic sets, also. You know, um, certainly not as big as Intolerance, but some did have very, very massive uh, sets. Uh, films made in France uh, in the silent period. <coughs> Friends, is the minority vote. Now you tasted my mutton. How do you like it, huh? Look, I want you to see this. This is you, right here. Notch 45, you Irish bog bastard. Now, the costumes are very important because it was a very colorful period, particularly of the uh, underworld. And I think um, we have many records of what the upper classes and what the middle classes wore, but only few about the, um, of the lower classes in the criminal world uh, or the underworld. Um, we have many descriptions of them, though, and we get the idea. We have the idea that the gangs themselves, there were so many gangs down there, that it's a very simple thing. And that is the uniform that they would make up, in effect, the colors they would wear that they'd be able to see, one gang member be able to see another gang member coming down the street and he or she would know uh, who they were and who they affiliated with. And because it was that tense, you see. So, um, for example, in the case of the dead rabbits, we knew that um, through research that uh, they used red stripes. In some cases, just down the, the side of the pants, another case across the shirt. Um, and ultimately, when we, when we did the dead rabbits, particularly for the end of the film, we used, Sandy Powell came up with the idea of doing the red stripes um, in a primitive way, that did it them, doing it themselves with paint on that, whatever shirts they had available as a symbol, in a way. Um, the Bowery Boys were much more, much more elegant. They had stovepipe hats, uh, red uh, fire shirts, uh, black frock coats, check pants, or plaid pants, and uh, tall boots, long boots. And so they, and, and what they called soap locks, the hair was matted down to, in a special uh, uh, kind of shiny, uh, what they used to call uh, patent leather hair in the 30s, and um, these were the Bowery Boys, very well-known. Plays were written about them in the 1840s, 1850s. And so we took that, and we, then we took the names of the gangs, and imagine ones that we did not have um, an idea what their costumes would have looked like. We took from the name, and we came up with, Sandy came up with different ideas, a uh, certain kind of hat, a certain way of walking, a certain, the shirt tails, we sort of elaborated on, the shirts being outside the pants, you know, making them longer than they would have been in, in reality. So that we've heightened the, the, the fantasy of the, of the place. But I think there's no doubt about it. I think um, no matter what we do in a film, there's probably much more, uh, who knows, a much more intense uh, if we had been there to really see what these were like. Uh, there were so many things that she came up with that way. Uh, the engravings in the Civil War photographs were just something that we thought people, um, that's how they... That's how they got their news, really, in a sense. 
they saw this, uh, there were Leslie's Weekly, I believe, and uh, of course Harper's Weekly, and a number of others, where there were, uh, and also the um, later, I believe, the Police Gazette, which was a real sort of uh, like the tabloid of the time, uh, and more like the more like the Inquirer today, you know. Uh, but they were very honest about it, what people felt about the world they were living in at that time. Uh, uh, how should I put it? They were they had no no compunction about denigrating any race that was in New York at the time and uh, all this sort of thing. And so uh, you find it to be very vivid and very, very uh, lurid in a way. Um, and so uh, we wanted to use a few more engravings in the film. We tried, but it got to be, it got to be, it got to kind of stop the entire picture in terms of the flow of it. So I pulled some back. And then I used just some of the Civil War photographs that, uh, that uh, Matthew Brady and his group of men took uh, uh, on the battlefields. And just, just, just to have a touch of it, because the thing is that it's the first time war was photographed. And when they started to see those photographs, around 1863, I guess, or so, maybe 62, uh, it was hard to get, uh, hard to continue the war, and that's one of the reasons the draft wasn't stated in New York, to get those men to go in. And of course, as I say, the draft riots are the worst riots in American history. Probably the worst loss of life since, until September 11th in New York. As for us, Tribes were gathered. At Chichester. The drums was beaten. Dead rabbits. The American Guard. The Atlantic Guard. The Slaughterhouses. The Bowery Boys. Confederation of American Natives. James Mooney! But all we could see. I believe it was Broadway and 29th Street, I may be wrong, where the uh, draft office was to be ready to be called out, the names to be called out uh, from the draft. And I believe the first drawing, I think it was in the daytime, um, early in the day, um, didn't cause any violence. I think it was the second one. And uh, that came from um, one of the fire gangs. And uh, there was one called the Black Joke that uh, a few members, I believe, had been, their names had been called out in the draft earlier that day. And in the second uh, meeting in which uh, there was a big crowd, and the moment that the um, names were being called out, the Black Joke, uh, broke the windows and, and, and created a demonstration. I don't think any of them had in mind what was going to happen. I think they were there basically to protest that two or three or maybe four or five, I'm not quite sure, of their uh, uh, gang members or brigade members, I should say, um, were drafted and they felt it was unfair. And that began a series of events that just went out of control. A lot of the Irish gang members did join up originally, but by 1863, not many guys were joining. And when the draft was um, announced, it was the first draft in American history or Union history, and a lot of these people came from Europe to um, escape what they considered uh, unfair, un um, uh, the injustice of uh, certain drafts that were uh, initiated in Europe in uh, certain countries. And so um, the reality was that they uh, didn't think anything like that could happen here. Um, at first, a lot of people uh, joined up. Um, Within two years, nobody had realized war was going to take that long, and it was going to be that costly in, in human terms. And particularly, one has to understand the 19th century in America is the most violent century in the history of America. Not the history of the world, but in America. And the Civil War has a lot to do with that. I saw them. I don't know what to think. Now, what is it that you are so fond of saying, Mr. Tweed? And, uh, Mr. Greeley, you weren't like this, but what is it? I don't remember. You can always hire one half of the poor to kill the other half. Come to say goodbye. 
I've booked passage for California. Jenny, give me one more day and I'll go with you. You'll be dead by then. Well, what would you have me do? I don't know. This will all be finished tomorrow. No, it won't. This whole place is gonna burn anyway. One of the reasons I, I was fascinated by the draft riots was the extent to which the struggle was expressed by the people who could not do anything about it. And the only thing they could do was let themselves be heard through violence, unfortunately. It wasn't an organized attack or riot. Within two or three days, uh, the worst elements of the mob were still running around hanging people and lynching um, African Americans. And, uh, but the reality was that um, at first they thought it was maybe a Southern-inspired and maybe British-inspired, too, attack on the city uh, as part of the Civil War. Um, in effect, the Civil War does come to New York in, 1860, in 1863 because of that. But it seems to be more of it seems to be more of a logical progression of a country that's trying to pull itself together, um, the social ills, um, the nature of uh, the anarchy of the, of the inner inner city itself. Um, it seems to be something that that basically uh, was a powder keg ready to go. And the only thing that was needed was that one little, somebody light that fuse, and that was the draft notice itself, the draft, in, in, uh, the, um, the creation of the draft itself, in which it was stated that you could avoid the draft if you had enough money to pay your way out, which was done in a, a very, you know, done through lawyers and that sort of thing, for $300, or you could send a substitute. A lot of rich people send substitutes. And so uh, the poor had no other recourse at that point. But you know what's important is that when you think of this, it's why I, I say that it seemed to be an expression of anger, an expression coming from 20 or 40 years of, uh, in a sense, social injustice, uh, failures of the city to pull together to deal with the poor, deal with the, the needy. They sort of avoided the issue in a way, and, and uh, it all exploded with the excuse of the draft. Um, and it's important to know that once the draft riots were over, um, a few months later, I think it was a few months later, Lincoln reinstated the draft and there wasn't one remark against it from the poor. They just had blasted all that energy and just gave in. Sacking houses, 27th Street and 7th Avenue. We have no force to send. 16th Precinct. All the stores are closing on 8th Avenue from fear of the mob in 17th Street. From 4th, the rioters are attacking colored boarding houses, robbing them and setting them on fire. From 21st, the mob have just broken open gun store on 3rd Avenue and are arming.
They're trying to cut all the wires. From first, riot at Pier 4, North River. They have killed Negroes there. A crowd is here and are going to destroy this station. Get him back! Get him back! From 18th Precinct, the mob have attacked the armory, 2nd Avenue, 21st Street. There is danger of firing the building. All 300 police wounded or unaccounted for. Find the military and send From 20th, send 100 men to disperse mob assailing Mayor Updike's house. Building corner 33rd Street, 2nd Avenue, set on fire by the mob. Barnum's American Museum on fire. Animals are escaping. Are Gunboat Liberty and ironclad Passaic now lying off the foot of Wall Street. They are ready to open fire on the mob. mob now going down Fifth Avenue to attack. Barnum's Museum burned. Uh, burned twice, and I don't believe it was during that period. It wasn't during the draft riots itself. But what I was trying to get across the reference, the reference to a sense of the anarchy and the chaos of the period, and the country being the city, and the country being up for grabs, so to speak. And these were images that came to mind from the real Barnum's Museum uh, fire, I believe it was a little later, but also from the sense of when a city breaks down, when all civilization breaks down. I wanted to give that impression at that point. And there were some diaries written about the fall of Berlin in, um, in 1945, uh, which described the, uh, the animals of the zoo, uh, the Berlin Zoo, running wild in the streets during the bombardments, the leveling of the city. And uh, one, it just I'm sort of, a, <laughs> it reminds me of when I, I like to read about ancient history, I like to read about the rise and the fall of civilizations of cities. And uh, to put ourselves in that mindset that we're not here forever, and that we shouldn't take anything for granted. And it could easily fall to a situation where anarchy and chaos reigns again. is that the film and the depiction of that time, the way I wanted to depict it, a combination of historical fact and imagination, which some people agree with, some don't. But I wanted to do it that way. And then it became, over the many years, an obsession. And once you have that obsession there, it's almost as if you're given, a, I don't know, the greatest, uh, I, don't, I don't mean the word toys, but you're given something that you could create. And it's there, and all these years you've been dreaming of it. And so um, uh, there's a great deal of excitement um, and a great deal of trepidation, fear. But with people like Ballhouse, Dante Ferretti, Vic Armstrong, Joe Reedy, and the rest of my crew, uh, they're moving ahead like an army. And they're excited. And that only gives me, makes me more excited. So um, uh, in my mind, I could probably still be shooting the film now as we speak uh, in 2003 because I could keep going down the street, let's do a scene in this, <laughs> let's do a scene in this building, let's do a scene in that building. Um, in my mind, uh, uh, it was really, there's no doubt that even being on the sets, we felt we were, it was a very specific city. It was real. It became real to us, myself and the actors. Um, basically, we could create our own world, and we had a base of certain extras that were there every day. 
they became part of it too. So in the morning when you're there, they're all walking around, they're in costumes, you're in a time warp. You know, I don't say it was easy. It was probably the hardest thing we've ever done next to the last temptation of Christ. But um, as I say, I, I, could, I could go back and continue shooting and do another story or another aspect of it. Thelma's Goodmaker has been editing every film with me, including some documentaries since Raging Bull, that's 1979, 1980. Uh, prior to that, I knew her at, we met at New York University where she took a summer course. Um, and uh, then we worked together on Woodstock where she was the main editor and Michael Wadley was the director, and one of the editors. I was, I was, I was an editor uh, after her. <laughs> I was a third place editor, so to speak. Uh, but in any event, um, then she went away for a, quite a long period of time and I, uh, I worked from Mean Streets on with other editors, and uh, oh, I edited the films myself, Boxcar and Mean Streets were edited by myself. And I just thought it would be interesting to bring her in, and uh, she wasn't even in the union at the time, and she had to get into the union for Raging Bull, and then uh, ultimately she won an Academy Award for it. And so we just know each other, and uh, she's tenacious in uh, dealing with uh, the emotion of a scene, uh, memorizes the rushes, as, uh, and, and also memorizing the order that I preferred them. And so, um, when I, if I become tired, I find usually that she is a person who will go after a scene and say, but I think I, I remember another take that you liked, but you put in third place that might help us here. Well, go ahead, put it in, let's see. She's very good that way. And also, also reconstructing some of the structure, ultimately. In, uh, in certain films I make, the writing extends into the editing, in a sense. Gangs is one of them, Casino is another. Uh, age of Innocence to a certain extent, and all this goes on. So she's also able to, uh, to uh, help that way. And one of the things she does, or doesn't do really, is read the script. So that when the rushes come in for the first day, she doesn't know what the film's really about, in, in a sense. I mean, she, gets, she has a general idea. But this way I have a cold, objective point of view. I said, uh, very often I find that uh, an overall a scene that I'm directing, I mean, I'm, uh, very often I find a scene I directed and shot uh, has a one major storytelling component in it. Uh, and sometimes when I choose the, the takes and that sort of thing and the, and the rushes, she puts it all together for me. And uh, I find that she's going according to what I've told her to do. But as we move forward, I ask her, wait a minute, did you know that this scene is supposed to show such and such? She goes, oh no, I didn't get that. And I said, well, what, what, how, how could that happen? <laughs> you know, that happens invariably, you know. They say, you don't, you don't understand that he's delivering a letter to say, no, I didn't quite get that. Ah, what, what do you think? Well, don't tell me you have to go do a close-up of the letter. I mean, that sort of thing. So, I mean, that's just an example, but I find sometimes that happens and it's refreshing to know, uh, even when you've covered all your bases, you think you've covered all your bases, that, uh, well, if, you know, if it's still not registering, then I have to think of, think of going another way. That's a general comment basically, and uh, uh, this was a very difficult film for us to edit. Uh, it was like a giant piece of sculpture that we kept chipping away, and I kept changing my mind and a lot of different things. I, 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 made, I, I kept a track of every screening and how long the film was. Uh, normally, Thelma's good make myself screen the picture eight, nine times. Cut number one, I believe, was, uh, I forget the date, but uh, it was three hours and 38 minutes. That was our assembly. That was everything we knew in the kitchen sink thrown in, you know. But did it work? No. Um, so two days later, I, re I recut it, and it came down to two, uh, three hours and 37 minutes. I cut out one minute. <laughs> there were 18 screenings, ultimately, of the film. 18 screenings, and there's not one version 
And I would say that's my original version. This was all series of changes and rewrites and restructuring at times till finally, finally, it's come down to the movie you see in the theater. Leonardo DiCaprio and I did, uh, I think it was the Today Show, it was NBC, I think it was, uh, Katie Couric, right before the film opened. Leo and I did this uh, interesting interview, I thought, in McSorley's Old Ale House. It was the day of one of the first big snowstorms in New York. After we did the interview, they took us downtown, and we were going to walk around what's left of the five points. There's only two corners left, and one of the, one of the areas is taken over by the Motor Vehicle Bureau, which is apt, I think, uh, considering what the five points was like. Um, but uh, the, there's a little park called Christopher Columbus Park, I believe. And that's the old square. That's the old, uh, that's the little Paradise Square. It's still there. But there's only two corners left. And uh, we stand on those corners in that, in that uh, little episode that we did for the Today Show. Uh, but it's quite funny because it, uh, the snow was so thick and fast that we, it was sort of like the retreat from Russia we were walking through. <laughs> I couldn't see a thing, you know. <laughs> but it was the day we had to go down and do it. That was it. That was the only day they could photograph it, and I had to go on the air. But it's telling that New York, when it finally got itself established, um, wiped away the five points and uh, created um, the federal district down there. All the, uh, uh, all the Greco-Roman, all the buildings of Greco-Roman architecture that deal with the courts and uh, the tombs, um, the prison down there. Uh, basically, it's what runs the city. It was four days and nights before the worst of the mob was finally put down. We never knew how many New Yorkers died that week before the city was finally delivered. From way back in that very first draft in 78, 79, that was the way it ended. We knew that we were diehard New Yorkers, and it had to end with the skyline being built. It just had to. In fact, we had a second part of the story that we wanted to do, which was the building of the Brooklyn Bridge and how the bridge linked Manhattan to the rest of the country, or vice versa. And, uh, and so um, it had to end with that. We just couldn't resist it. The thing about it, of course, that was that we did that um, painting, uh, and uh, I should say a series of dissolves and paintings, uh, before September 11th. And right after it, I thought about it. And, you know, we're making a film. Uh, I felt that to taking out the towers was not the right way to go. I thought we should leave them in. The people in the film, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, were part of the creation of that skyline, not the destruction of it. Um, and if the skyline collapses, uh, ultimately, we're aware of the struggle of humanity, if there's any left, um, building up another one. I think this is, this is the sense of, of time going by, the sense of uh, civilization changing, uh, and primarily the idea of, of the city that we know now coming out of this extraordinary struggle, which not many people really know about. Um, and so I felt it was more, um, I felt it would have been, not would have been right to go in and, and keep revising New York skyline and movies, uh, erasing the two towers. Um, that was that was the way I left it. Well, for those of you who watched up to now, I have to thank you for viewing the DVD of Gangs of New York. Thank you. <laughs>